Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about we uh, what we do at our website, and that's officehours.global. Uh, and we're also on Discord. So if you check on Discord and look for Office Hours and get involved in that, we do a lot of discussion kind of uh, aside from during the show hours on our Discord server. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your submitted questions. So it's very important to ask your questions and to vote on those. Second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic today, Zoom. Our friends Andy Carluccio and Adam Tao are coming by to help us understand the latest and greatest in Zoom. So this is your chance to get your questions about Zoom answered directly from the company. So uh, that's our second hour. Right now, let's delve into general Q&A. Mitch, you're reading today. What do we got? Thank you, Bill. Uh, delving with uh, Robert Shoji in Los Angeles, California, and he's asking, can you recommend a small portable mic speaker amplifier combo that can be used for giving an outdoor speech to about 25 people? Let's start with Courtney Gooden. We're going to go to Mitchell and then Jeffrey after that. But Courtney, start us off. Sure. It's uh, they, I've used a lot of times for playback and for these kind of situations at JBL, the Eon One series. Uh, they're medium-sized, pretty small. You plug a... Uh, a um, a dynamic microphone into them, like an SM58 on a cable. That's the best way to go. These are battery powered, and they do have uh, uh, Bluetooth. But a lot of people have been complaining about this particular speaker that the Bluetooth doesn't work. Another possibility is the Electrovoice Everse, which is a weatherized battery powered loudspeaker with Bluetooth and audio control. Uh, that's about uh, 749 bucks at. Uh, at Location Sound Services, and if you are in Los Angeles, which you are, you can rent these items, some of these items. they I think they have the JBLs and the Electrovoices in rental. Uh, so you just rent it for the day and try it out uh, from uh, Location Sound Corp or True Audio, I think also has some for doing a you know, small uh, PA or you know, playback. Mitchell. Another great place to uh, check out uh, the Guitar Center. I think they have one in L.A. You could uh, see them and test them there. Um, I agree with Courtney's selection of JBL. That'd be my first choice. The second choice, although not for critical listening, for PA, works fine. Uh, Bose makes a number of devices. Uh, they have a line array called an L1 Pro 16. Uh, it's about $2,000, so if you don't want to go that or it's too pricey for you. Uh, drop down to the Bose S1 Pro Multi. It's just a large speaker, but they have mixers built into them, Bluetooth built into them, which is kind of handy if you have to uh, do a little bit of mixing and you want it all in one thing. Jeffrey Powers. So if you need small and portable, uh, there is a company called Anchor Audio, and they have this thing right here. This is the AN1000X, which is a great little speaker. It is super small. And uh, it, for 25 people, it's perfect for that. The older versions I used to use uh, for an acoustic show, uh, it was a little thin with when it comes to music. But if it's just for speaking, that's going to be a, a great small speaker, easy to set up, yeah, easy to, to transport. You're good to go. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, the ones I've used in the past, the most recent past have been the JBL Eon 208Ps. Um, and they've worked really well as something that you don't have to you know, put together at all. You just plug them in and they go. <laughs> so, so I definitely would recommend those. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from Talalik Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. John, when you tested video input with iOS 17 yesterday, did it work with Zoom? And what was the process for getting it to work? Mr. Preto. So, so 
Jack Canyon, who you see ask uh, questions here, a longtime producer, uh, is the one that downloaded it and got it working. I know he's got FaceTime working, but Jeffrey has more to add, and I have to run to the bathroom. Okay, go, Jeffrey. Yeah, actually, it FaceTime is the only app right now that you can use. In fact, if you if you go back and you look on the page, I was looking. I I tried every app, and FaceTime is the only one. Uh, I even tried the old and the new Filmic Pro. I've tried everything, and I don't know if they'll be able to open it up for the future for other apps. But right now, FaceTime is it. And guess what? Uh, hooked up to the ATEM Mini. And uh, it's showing my desktop on my uh, uh, Mac, Intel Mac right now. So you can actually do it that way. But yeah, FaceTime's the only way that you can get that camera in there. Cool. Alex? Yeah, I think that's most likely just because that was what they had to do pre-release without announcing that it existed. So I, I have a feeling that by the time it's released, uh, there'll probably be an API that can be used by many companies to do this. So I don't think that they're going to limit it to FaceTime. Um, so I think that's probably... Yeah, by October, we should have it. We probably will see it in betas in July or August. Uh, so so I think it's pretty interesting. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting is if you can get a breakout that does that has the Ethernet and an HDMI out of the iPad and then enough USB-Cs to go back into the iPad. Um, I think I'm very curious as whether we can go into the iPad with a display that goes back out that starts to create that kind of telestrator opportunity that is uh, that a lot of us are being really interested in. So we'll see see if we can do both of those. That's pretty cool. I mean, the fact that they put those huge M chips in the iPads means there's a lot of processing power. So those oh, it's could got, become very powerful. It's got plenty of processing power. <laughs> there's no <laughs> issue there. It's it's just a question of whether there's enough bandwidth in that pipe uh, and in and, 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 and something that would plug onto the side of it. I think that there is. I mean, I think that it's just a matter, of, and I think that you're probably going to see someone build something that makes that possible in the not-too-distant future. Let's move to the next question. Jens Olson from Sandpoint, Idaho, asks, is there a way to record the ATEM SuperSource so it is editable in Resolve after the fact? When I try recording using Extreme ISO, I get iOSs and program, but the SuperSource is just program feed. Alex Lindsay, start us off. Uh, output out of one of the HDMI outputs the super the, the whole program and then you have the super source <laughs> like that's the only that's the only way that I know to do it. Uh, it, it it does not record internally uh, as the super the super source it's just not going to be built that way so you need to it, it has to do with I think the 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 processing power of the system so it's not going to be able to do that but if you take your second you know if you have a extreme SDI you've got four out video outputs which is incredible. Uh, but if you have an extreme HDMI, take one of those, uh, just send the program out. So now you have the whole program, you drop it in, you grab those super sources where they appear, and you'll stick them over top. That's the only solution that I know of. Ronnie? Yeah, exactly what Alex said. We've done that, and it's working perfectly. Nice. Courtney Gooden, you had another thought? Yeah, I use the uh, external program out, use one of these uh, capture recorders, one button recorder. You don't have to tie up another computer to record. Here's another one. They record H.264 1080p, and uh, you can then just drop that in because I think the ISOs record in 1080p H.264. Nice. There are some options. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas has a question. Discuss the iRig Pre microphone preamp that allows musicians to use their stage or studio mics with their iOS device. Jeffrey Powers, start us off. Yeah, this is the iRig Pre right here. I, this is the Pre 2, uh, which is a great little device. Uh, it's battery powered. 
Uh, there is no uh, there is no power source other than than, than uh, two AA batteries. It has the TRRS, so you're definitely going to need an adapter, and that's by design. So you can put it into your in your phone, your iPhone. You can put it into your Android. You can put it in your iPad if if, if that's uh, USB C. Um, it's got a gain on the side, and of course we have levels. It, it does have a phantom power on top. It, it, this blue, it's a blue light, and it'll shine on both if if it's running phantom power, and it will tell you if the if you're overdriving it because uh, this will turn red. Uh, my lead singer of my band uses this when he does his at-home shows uh, on Facebook, and he has no problem with that. He has a great sound coming out of it. If you need something with external power, I would highly recommend going for one of the bigger ones, the uh, Duo, iRig Duo. That gives you two XLRs, a left and a right. Uh, just keep that in mind when you're putting it in, because uh, then some sources will come in only on the left channel, so you'll have to uh, fix that. Uh, but then you'll be able to plug it into a wall if you need to. But uh, otherwise, it works just like any other interface, and I could even plug it into this computer and, and run it through my microphone if I wanted to. Jeff Cohen. I'll point out two other interesting things about it. If you just want a mic or two mics, uh, the yours and the one Jeffrey mentioned are great. You know, there's also, if you want to be able to, bring additional sources into it. There's the uh, iRig Stream Solo and then higher models from that. That gives you the ability, for example, to have just a standard mixer, uh, plug your mic in whatever other audio sources you may want, and then go from that mixer into the uh, iRig Solo and then uh, use it on the phone. The one other thing, if this is why you're looking for it or anyone else, Apple has done yet again another kind of unique Apple-y thing in terms of how um, a TRRS plugs into it. And you cannot, I know because I've tried many adapters and even spliced my own wires trying to recreate this, you cannot simply take one of those adapters, uh, a headset TRRS adapter that splits out, you know, the mic and headphone input and output. It just simply will not work. Even if you're using Apple's um, uh, mini adapter to lightning, it won't work with that because Apple does something weird and iRig uh, is compliant. So you plug it in and iOS just thinks it's a, a headset with both an input and an output. Excellent. Let's get to the next question. From Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herdenam, Germany, the WWDC 23 is still a pre-produced event. In addition, they had a parallel in-person event. What does the panel think about this concept? Let's start with Courtney Gooden here. Courtney? Well, I think a lot of people that paid for the money to travel to Cupertino and sit out in the sun and watch a big LED screen uh, play the video out are kind of disappointed. Uh, the only thing that they do have over the rest of us that are sitting at home in the comfort of our living room watching the same material is that, you know, uh, Tim and Federici came out and did a little uh, warm-up, but then they just showed the video. They have a chance to lay hands on the equipment, but the only equipment <clears throat> that uh, they got a chance to see in advance in person was, was the vision, because the other stuff is going to be available this week. So you could order it and have it in your hands for real and test it this week. So it doesn't give you much of an advantage to actually be there and get an invite and go out and sit in the sun and bake. Um, while you watch the video. So I think the uh, the press that was invited was a kind of disappointed. 
<clears throat> in the fact that they didn't get to see the dog and pony show live. And, um, and those of us that watched at home, uh, saw a nice slick presentation that, uh, uh, even though it was two and a half hour, two, two plus hours, uh, almost three hours, uh, we could sit in comfort. And if we had our, uh, you know, hooked up to our TiVo, like I did, I can back up and see that again. They can't do that if they're sitting on stage, you know, sitting out in front of the stage. Jeffrey Powers. Well, there's a lot more in a WWDC event. It's it's uh, it's the keynote, yes, but then there's going to be the, the hands-on uh, area, of course. And of course, I don't think they got a hands-on of the Vision Pro. All they could do was see it on a post that was in the middle and like a 15-foot circular barrier around it. Uh, Tim Cook didn't even put on the Vision Pro, is my understanding. Uh, so nobody got to see it in action. And uh, although I've heard that there are a couple reporters in New York that have had put that on, uh, but WWDC has more than just that. There's also other events that are going on. But yeah, I completely agree with Courtney. Sitting in a big amphitheater to watch a big screen of people talking, and the biggest problem with that, that I have with the presentation, and we talked about it yesterday, uh, how you know Craig went into the power stance. And it's like, that's something that he'd have a hard time doing if he was actually talking about it. And, and you'd see all the little nuances if they're, you know, in a presentation that you miss that when it's pre-recorded. So I, I kind of, I, I know if I was invited to WWDC, I'd go or any other event, I'd go and watch that big screen because, you know, it's an opportunity. It's like going to see the Super Bowl or something like that. So, but uh, I am disappointed that it's not a stage show. Alex, stage shows are dead. They'll never come back. Uh, within five years, you'll never see another stage show. It is the the ability to control the the, the process. I mean, if you look at uh, NVIDIA, uh, they're never going back. Apple is never going back. And the problem is, is that as Apple continues to make these videos better and better and better, uh, Google and Microsoft and others look worse and worse and worse. It is just painful. It's like watching the paint dry or the grass grow to watch a stage event at this point. And so um, you have to remember that you have to look at the numbers of people. There's over 10 million plus watching a show as opposed to 1,000 in the room. Those 1,000 will show up no matter what. Um, I think that thinking that the, the, the Apple, I think, used to worry that the press wouldn't show up. They don't have that problem anymore. Everyone wants to be there. Everyone wants to see it. There were definitely press that... Uh, Justine and and Marcus Brownlee and others, you know, got to put the headsets on. Not not everyone did. You had to have a certain <laughs> a certain level uh, to, to be putting them on. But people de definitely did. And there's an opportunity for them to be around each other, um, as well as for developers to be around each other if they get invited. For developers, you know, the Apple for an Apple developer, the Apple uh, spaceship is kind of mecca. You know, so so they're going to want to they're going to want to go. Um, you know, it's it's very small. If they don't want to go, there's ten behind them that do. So um, so I don't think that that's. I think that you are seeing the future of these events, um, and it's not going to just be Apple. Apple's leading the way as it did with keynotes. Keynotes became a thing because of Steve Jobs. The reality is is that almost nobody is as good as Steve Jobs at actually delivering a keynote. You know, so he made something that was his. The only other person that I've seen that does one as good as, as Steve Jobs is Mark Benioff from Salesforce. And, um, you know, I have streamed hundreds, potentially thousands of these sessions, uh, you know, of, of this type of thing. And I can just tell you that, that they're never going to go back as, as, as they start to see this go because their ability to control the, the narrative, they're, they're, it's all 
They're not making anything up on stage. They're just doing it in a slow, boring way. You know, like, so they, you know, so they're not, you know, they're reading a teleprompter. They're going through this process. There's no value to anyone for them to do it live. These are people who, I mean, for Steve Jobs, he, he was a really great, you know, and smart guy. And he was able to do this really in a certain way. But most of these asking most of the executives in most companies to do a live presentation is asking a little leaguer to go play in the pros. You know, we're used to watching actors. We're used to watching professional moderators and they come out and, and it's just amateur hour, you know? And, and so the thing is, is that it, it's, it's just really painful to watch um, anybody from these companies, especially the engineers, actually try to be um, sound useful. So I think that I don't think that you're going to see it. I mean, I will be blown away and we'll hopefully still be here if we if we meet three years from now or definitely five years from now and anybody is doing a live presentation. And if they do, people are going to talk about how dry and boring it is because they're all dry and boring. And Apple's was dry and boring by the end of that anyway. Without Steve Jobs, it wasn't there. So, so I think everyone's going to give up. Jeff Cohen. And if you notice, by the way, you know, we're talking about live, don't do it live, and hopefully it goes without saying, but what that means is multiple takes, redoing something, getting the wording right. If you, and if you looked at the clock, like I did, you'll notice how, I mean, they were precise before, but I mean, they are on the nose for where these segments end. They can map that all out. If someone does a flop, I mean, nothing is going to go wrong. There's not going to be any live on stage failures that have happened in the past. Uh, now I will say the one difference, Alex, it was mentioning Steve, you know, that, that Tim Cook, and we have one more thing. Just didn't have the same weight. It was a nice nod, but didn't have the same weight as when Steve said it. Alex, you want to come back? You didn't know they didn't use it until now. So they they saved that. They kept that powder dry for a long time uh, to to do that. They don't. They haven't been doing it uh, regularly. Um, the thing is, is that I think that a lot of folks who think that it would be better to do it live have not been the team working on these kinds of events. And I've worked on many events that are very similar to this one. So, and, and, uh, and, and, and a very large keynotes, a two second glitch is a month of meetings and it puts everybody's job at risk. You know, like just, just so you understand, like no one, no one doing these, these keynotes, the, the team does not want to do them live. Nobody wants to do them live because live is a huge risk for them. Um, it's a risk to their career. It's a risk to their 401k. It's a risk to everything else. They don't, you know, so there, there's not a lot of people who they they love running the event, but doing the live presentation, unless they think that that's the only way they're going to keep their job, that they're, nobody's, nobody planning this wants to be part of a lot. You know, people want to get away from live all the time because it's really high risk. And again, it puts themselves, their job, their career path, all these things at risk. And that's why you're going to see it wind out because now that they realize there's another way to do this. Um, you know, a lot of the event event groups within the companies are going to retreat out of a live event. And, and if I could just add that, that's a long tail thing. I mean, when there's a flub, like some of the ones oh. I bet we can all remember some, that doesn't go away when the show ends. That's yeah. talked about. Sometimes that's the headlines of articles. I mean, potentially and, affecting and, stock. I mean, imagine if there was a big flub that happened yeah. with the visor. No, it's, 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 it's a big deal, you know, and it, and the thing is, is that they have no less viewers, <laughs> like none, no less viewers to do it, to do it re recorded. It just doesn't, you know, and I, while I was streaming events, like the one that you saw earlier this week, we were telling people you shouldn't do this. Like if you're not going to be interactive with the audience, if you're not going to, now I think that there's a lot of things Apple could do that would be great. And, um, you know, there's, 
I don't know what they're going to do with WWDC, and I don't know what's happening right now. They're not really doing what the, the real value of WWDC was to be on the ground, uh, interacting with other developers, on the ground, interacting with Apple engineers. There was huge whiteboards that went down the thing. Um, and, and that was what the real value was. The sessions were almost a side, um, a sideshow, you know, and so, and they were, they were really hard to watch. The general side, if you think that the keynote was slow, the, just the sessions were, you know, people who never do this, trying to show, you know, trying to do it once a year, even with a lot of practice, I mean, eight weeks of practice or nine weeks of practice, still, it was like a huge time dump for them. And it was very painful, you know, to watch. And, um, and so uh, I think that Apple could do a lot. And I think this is the beginning of a digital experience. But I think that Apple could have these roundtable discussions. They did that a couple falls ago where they had their developers meeting with other developers and you could go in into WebEx and they would tell you what the little mini session and then they would answer all your questions. And that was far better for the online audience than, than anything we've had in the past. And the Jeffrey. final bonus? Special effects. They I get know. to do special Ooh, effects. IPad, like iPad, that, yeah, iPad right? I love that. A little <laughs> yeah. surprise and delight there for you. Let's go to Jeffrey. Jeffrey? I will say this last thing, and that is what Jeff just said. You know, you, you take one one small mistake on stage, and then uh, there are a lot of people are paying for it. I totally agree on that. But if the one time that the video, the whole video decides to go down, and then there's no keynote, that's going to be a whole different story. And I have a feeling that they're that then they're going to relook at that. So I don't. I still think that uh, a stage presentation is going to be very very important in a lot of cases, especially looking at somebody's eyes and seeing if they believe in the product that they're pitching instead of uh, reading from a script. I, I just think that the, 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 with Apple leading the way on this and, and making everybody else look so bad, the, the, the trajectory is against uh, a live presentation. I think only uh, small, the larger companies will eliminate them in the first, next couple of years and then the smaller companies will follow suit because they, they're, out of, they're out of fashion. And, and I think that some people will hang on to it, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna last. The thing that was interesting to me is that, you know, remember, this is a developer's contract, uh, conference. It's not actually a pub. Well, originally, the idea wasn't a public-facing event. They had those, and they happened at different places. But it's fascinating to me how many people now want to see something like a developer's conference. The keynote here is almost like its own separate beast that the whole world watches for, no matter whether you're involved in development or not. And then the hundreds of videos they publish after this, and they're starting to go online now. And it used to be that you had to be a developer to get to them. Now anybody can get to them. So you can get on the developer site. You can look at those individual presentations. You can search for topics that are interesting. And you'll see the actual engineers behind them explaining kind of how the code works and how things function. That, I think, is going to build more and more of an audience as time goes by because of what Alex has said. It's not something you have to travel to to see. That content, which is beautifully produced, they do it all live in the weeks ahead of the show. That's there for anybody on the planet to click into and learn about these incredibly narrow niches. You know, I'm interested in power supply to this. Was there something released? There was. There's a new code or whatever. And someone will explain it to you. It, it, it's a fascinating thing, this public developer confluence. Let's move to the next question. Jason Robert Shaw from Sarasota, Florida has a question. Happy World Oceans Day. California ports will be live streaming from underwater today at 11 a.m. Pacific time. What's the most challenging environment the panel has streamed from? Oh, great question. Uh, let's go to Ronnie Hofsoy first. Yeah, one of the most uh, uh, 
exhausting productions we had were a few years back where we had a multi-camera uh, setup for for a, a cross-country skiing uh, marathon going from point A to point B where we had limited uh, budgets and limited personnel. Uh, so we had to uh, have the persons uh, streaming from the start uh, using mobile phones um, going to the next point before the skiers were actually going there. So we had one dedicated driver uh, driving this camera person from, from, I think it was three points. Then, of course, we had some problems with the air link uh, uh, from the areas where there were no cellular uh, coverage. And uh, I think we had in total of uh, 14 camera angles. Uh, it went pretty good. It was a cold day, though. Mitch. Uh, the very best way to record underwater um, is to use a nuclear submarine. That's about all I can tell you. <laughs> very few people can get those at their local rental house. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the probably the most challenging uh, for us, we, we found that uh, we, we did underwater and that wasn't as hard as we thought it would be. Uh, it, was, it was just a matter of getting the comms right. So we had to rewire the comms for the headsets. Uh, space station was was pretty straightforward because you're really just interacting with Houston. Um, you're not really interacting with the space station. They manage the the connection there. Um, and the one that turned out to be the hardest one, I think, is that we um, we did one out of uh, I can't think of the name of the comp- the city right now, but it was where they do Mars simulations for people training to be astronauts. And so they're they're it's in the middle of Utah. And uh, it is, um, it's very, very far away <laughs> and there's no cell service. So there's no cell service. We had two sat trucks. Um, it's, it was cold and dusty and we were doing a, f- a five camera 360 shoots. This is the first 360 shoot for Facebook. Um, so the very first one. So in, we've never done 360 before publicly. Um, we are in a place that has no cell service. Uh, so we're relying 100% on our comms and we have some sat trucks that are uplinking uh, 1080p. And that was probably the one of the more stressful ones. There was a moment about twenty minutes before the show. I was like, "This isn't going to happen. <laughs> like, this is not going to like this isn't like this is coming." We had the our 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 UPS had caught fire because we gave it a square wave, and there was a bunch of other things that had slowed us down a little bit. And I was like, "I don't think it's going to work." But we started on time, and and uh, and it, it, it came out fine. But it was a little a little tight. John Preto. So for the change of the millennium, 1999, we did a round the world stream in my, one of my old companies. We started in the Christmas Islands. We didn't get every time zone. 20, we had about 18 people and the, coordinating the 18 people around the world and staying up for 24 hours. It was a lot of fun. Courtney. I guess it doesn't really count as a live stream because it was for then, but I worked on um, a live uh, show, network show for CBS called Summer Sunday, which was a satellite show. It was done live on Sundays. And we did a show from on the 20th anniversary of Woodstock from Yasker's Farm uh, up on a hill. And uh, we, of course, it was all satellite. It was all live. I was running teleprompter, and the teleprompters were old CRT teleprompters and computer-based, but uh, CompuPrompt. But we had to haul them up the sides of hills and run power up there. And then, of course, it rained just like it did at Woodstock right before the show went on. We had to cover everything up, and we had no coverage for the uh, hosts that were on a little uh, custom-built stage sitting right where the stage was at Woodstock. No cover over it. And so they. I said, well, what are we going to do if it rains? Well, we'll give them umbrellas. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was kind of tough. I have four or five cameras with teleprompters on them out in the middle of a field in a rainstorm. 
Most of my work was before streaming, so I had to do it live. But one time, I'll just mention it very briefly, I had to work in a factory that was so loud that you had to have the top-level OSHA hearing. And I had to direct four people uh, in a live insert from there. And so with their wireless mics coming back to me, I was the only person who could hear anything. Literally, they couldn't hear anything. And everything had to be hand gestures toward them. You talk now, stop, you go next. It was insane. So when you get into things that are really loud or really hot, those, to me, are the tough ones. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado asks, does Vision Pro announcement change the necessary video quality for content creation and camera choice? Death of 1080? Courtney, start us off. I doubt it. Uh, and I was really confused by the specs that they announced because they said uh, 23 million pixels spread across, and that's the term they use, spread across two eyes. And if you do the math, uh, 4K or even UHD, which isn't actually 4K, a little less, is 24,883 pixels, uh, you know, if you count each, the red, green, and blue pixel, you know, each of the red, green, and blue pixels for one eye. So one eye would be 24,883. And I'm not sure what aspect ratio. It looked to be kind of square rather than 16 by 9. So I'm not sure what the aspect ratio is, and they've been kind of hazy on on how how many actual pixels there are. So I doubt they will change the specs of what you're producing in. You'll just conform to a window within that area that it can display. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, and the infrastructure is just not there yet to do uh, a lot of stuff like that. Like, for instance, I finally got my fiber connection. I was actually the first person in the neighborhood that get the uh, AT&T fiber connection. Uh, once they put all the cables in, that took like a year and a half for that to happen. And I've been running some 4K tests on YouTube uh, the last couple nights. And I'm pretty impressed because I could actually run it at 35 uh, uh, megabits per second uh, going into the, uh, into the system there. Um, a lot of other people are still on the, uh, the non-symmetrical lines so uh, putting in a 4k uh, live stream is just not possible right now maybe doing a 4k video and then bringing it up but then once again you also have the cameras which uh, a lot of people are, are still working on 1080 cameras and it's a, sta a stable thing heck even uh even twit uh, they used to upload 360 videos when everybody was going to 1080 because it was the most stable at that point. So the best thing to do is to try and get the best best shot, best resolution, best frame rate possible. And then if you're a step down, you're a step down. It just happens. Alex. I was, I've been generating most of my content at 4K for a long time. We do step down to 1080p occasionally because we can uh, or we need to because of some kind of requirement. It could be high frame rate. It can be a lot of different things. So I, I don't think 1080p is going anywhere, um, you know, but we may start to see the frame rate increase um, because if you want that that stuff to, to feel more integrated with that solution, you're going to probably want a higher frame rate. We think that the camera that the headset is running at 83 uh, 83 frames per second based on the fact that the r1 pulls at 12 milliseconds uh, but we'll see if that actually uh, happens but i don't think it's the death of it I, I would be considering thinking about how you can generate content um, at um, both 4k and stereo 4k uh, and i think that there's a 50 50 chance that we will see a stereo solution for the iphone um, in uh, in september 
Um, because if, if an iPhone can capture stereo, maybe not interocular, but just having a, a slight um, amount of, uh, of you know, that, this is what the hydrogen did. The, the, the red hydrogen built 3D by having two lenses that were right next to each other. Um, so I think that the, I think you may see an iPhone capable of shooting stereo um, this fall. If they do that, a lot of us who have stereo rigs have to dust them off, <laughs> figure out how to, how to send them because people are going to gravitate in this headset towards stereo solutions because it looks amazing on a headset. This is what it was built for. After all these years, this is the kind of delivery format that you really want to watch a stereo um, output. So I actually went to one of the WWC DC videos yesterday and watched it about the goggles and what the technology, some of the technologies that they're using. And what was fascinating to me is that the whole goggles don't have all that resolution all the time. There's a zone in the center that tracks your eyes. And if you're moving it to one side of the display, higher resolution follows instantly as your eyes move. So they don't try to fill the entire goggle thing with right. 100% of the res resolution. 100% of the time. Yeah, but it's all those pixels technology. Yeah, that's foveated renderer. It's the foveated right. renderer that does that and it's uh it it that's more of a, a bandwidth issue. So it's not not really a bandwidth issue but a, a, a CPU GPU issue. Uh the pixels and, yeah, are being all able remaining to blast stable. To the stream the high res. Yeah, so the area. pixels are all remaining the same there but uh, the foveated renderer will allow you to to um for it to to focus the GPU and CPU work on the area that's in front of it but the 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 video itself typically is still going to be all there. Yeah, it was also real interesting because their interface guidelines talk about the the square in the center uh, where areas can be easily accessed by a glance. And yeah. there are all sorts of de design deadline, uh, design specs for how much space you need between different areas of what you're going to present in the goggles so that people don't get confused and they and your resolution gets so small as an interface designer that they can't easily operate things. It's just a whole new world that we're going to be into as this develops and comes out. Let's go to the next question. From L. Wilson Spyro in Berlin, L says, since the Vision Pro runs its own unique OS, how would developers even begin to develop apps and integrations for and with it? Jeff Cohen, start us off. Well, first of all, I just put two links in the chat. Uh, the first one, so of course, Apple has prepared to answer this very question. There's really four things, uh, actually five, you know, and we just had a show uh, where the topic was uh, USDZ. Alex did a great job of really walking through that. So, of course, you want to be familiar with that. Um, four things, uh, you know, right now you have Swift UI, you have uh, Reality Kit. AR kit. And one of the things they announced uh, at the uh, show was the new one, uh, Reality Composer Pro, uh, which is due out later this month. So, you know, they've got all the tools there. But, you know, also keep in mind, if I'm not mistaken, I think they said, you know, all existing iOS apps will run. And I think they said day one. So, of course, they'll run as is. What you want to focus on is then uh, adding all the cool stuff, especially the, the dealing with the background and, and anything that is specifically 3D or spatial, but um, they've got all the tools and the steps for how to prepare. And, and of course, you can prepare and start developing without the the headset. And, and we've known, the other thing that's interesting, we've talked about on the show, we've known for a long time, they've been prepping us all by giving us all these tools to develop and test AR, you know, with our phones. So, uh, you know, you can be ready to go as soon as you're ready to, and have your stuff ready for when you finally get your headset. 
Alex, your comments. Yeah, um, I, you know, they, they have a simulator, and so it's not going to be in a headset, but what you're going to see is an unwrapped version, and um, I believe that you're probably going to be able to, to look around, quote-unquote look around, with your iPad, um, you know, so you can kind of look and see what, what's there. But this is also why they're moving slowly, is they're going to give, I mean, I think Apple's done a great job at, at giving everybody, um, they've been building a lot of these tools over the last five years. They are now going to give developers another six months to work on it. Then it's going to. Then you have a product that's probably going to roll out very slowly in the low millions, uh, high hundred thousands, um, and so it gives the developers a lot of time uh, to kind of get things worked out. And they they're 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 also fortunately giving the developers a lot of guidance on how to get started. But it won't it won't really work until the, the developers put these on their heads. Let's go to Courtney Gooden. Yeah, since it uses the same M2 processor as the uh, you know iPad and iPhone, uh, I mean, and the uh, and the uh, main uh, Mac Minis and all the other all the other M2 processor uh, uh, computers out there, the the software will basically use the same code base. The difference is the user interface and the user interface having to use eyeball tracking instead of touch. So it's, since it doesn't involve touch and uh, sensing the uh, the pinches and the hand gestures, uh, that all has to be an overlay over uh, the existing programming language, the API that they're using. So I think it'll just be an additional API that um, lets you convert all of your touch controls to the eye tracking and the pinching uh, gesture uh, connection. So that's how it'll let existing programs run and it'll map the existing programs into its 3D space so that you can position the, a flat panel display of a program that isn't specifically written for that operating system to run. Okay, uh, let's go to the next question. Next one in from Richard Bowman in Defiance, Ohio. One of the things that has kept me from purchasing a Mac was that I wanted to dabble in AR VR development, primarily Meta, now that Apple has partnered with Unity, what are the chances of seeing a version of Unity optimized for Apple Silicon? And Alex Lindsay. Pretty high. <laughs> so I would, I, would, I would guess that part of the deal of getting mentioned in the, in the uh, my guess is part of the deal of being mentioned in the keynote is that a Unity will probably be native on M1 by the end of the year. So I think that it's pretty high that it'll be probably native. Uh, Jeff Cohen. And if you look, by the way, in the link, uh, actually, I forget which one it is that I posted in the chat. I mean, not only as Alex said, did they mention it, but it's it's right there front and center that it will be part, I, I think, of the new tool, but it'll be, it'll be integrated. So uh, almost certainly. Let's go to the next question. And the next question uh, requires some help from the panel. Uh, the gentleman's name needs to be pronounced correctly. So I'd like Ronnie to jump in and uh, do this for me, if you don't mind, Ronnie. Yeah, it's uh, Kjetil Flo Jarsvold from uh, Trom uh, Tromsø, Norway. He is actually from the uh, middle part of Norway, and they use a lot of special characters in their names. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. What are the panel's thoughts on the Google Starline? Alex. It's really cool. I mean, they've been working on it for a decade, and it's it's a it's a really uh, it's a really cool thing. I think it's a lot of infrastructure. It's expensive. I think that you'll see you could potentially see someone using it as a uh, something that's slick at at a location. I, I, it being rolled out in any wide wide way is probably many years away, um, just because it's pretty expensive to execute, and uh, I think it only really works in very controlled environments. So, so I think that it it looks really cool when you when you see it, but I think that it's very hard to put it into place. 
and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that people will feel like they need it. I think that's going to be the challenge. Jeffrey. Yeah, I completely agree. So what basically it's doing is it's creating a 3D model of you and then projecting that uh, to the other person. So it kind of gives more of a, uh, there's more, a little bit more depth in the, uh, in the video when you're looking at the other person. Uh, of course, it'd be, the, it'd be no different than in the 20s when, uh, 1920s, when uh, you'd have to go to a phone booth just to get a, uh, a more quiet environment to talk to somebody over the phone. Uh, uh, watching the video, I saw, you know, there, there's still some uh, some problems to it, such as hairlines and stuff like that. There was a person with uh, with a very, you know, dreadlock type hair, and they were moving around. You could actually see it kind of looked like uh, like they were on a green screen because it was cutting in and out on that. And uh, but the the one thing it does have going for it, it's, I have a feeling it's the exact same type of technology that the Vision Pro is going to be utilizing, except the fact that you're going to be in front of the camera and whatever you know facial expressions you do uh, it'll be able to pick up on that and project that off into the uh, onto the other side but some people might think still that it's a flat image trying to be bended around a 3d image and uh looks like next question next one in from l wilson spiro from berlin does anyone know how streaming video, audio, and data from Antu, the Vision Pro, would work? I'm dying to get the eye and hand tracking data sent out over OSC. Alex, I'm sorry, Jeff Cohen first, then Alex. Jeff? Yeah, I'm not sure about streaming out from it. Uh, in, you know, it'll you'll be able to watch content streamed otherwise. But, you know, I, I'm not clear exactly on what you're asking, but one thing they were very clear to point out is that they are not exposing specifically the eye tracking and even hand tracking. In other words, you're not going to have constant real-time understanding of where someone's hands are uh, for very good reasons, right? Especially eye tracking, you know, this is not meant to monitor what parts of a website I look at. So the headset, the OS will be watching that for gestures and it will communicate the gestures to the apps, but you're not going to have real-time eye and hand tracking uh, exposed to any of the apps. Alex. I think cur cursor position may actually give you a fair bit of that information, um, but it won't be, as as Jeff said, I don't think it's going to be the explicit eye information. Uh, and the same thing, I think it's going to give you back gestures. I don't know if it's going to give you back the actual hand uh, um, data. I think eventually it's going, if it doesn't give you hand data soon, it will eventually do that because the hand data is actually, you know, to what L wants to do is super useful, being able to potentially play instruments and do other things with it, but you'd need all the data there to, to get that working. And I think that you will probably see that sort itself out. Courtney Gooden. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, they do. They did say they have that separate chip that's just designed for uh, taking in all the information from the uh, gesture cameras and the eye tracking cameras and process it in real time. And they will probably translate that into touch, like 10 point touch can, uh, uh, clicks and things, you know, touches and movement of the cursor, like Alex says. So it'll just come out as a cursor position and a multi-touch type of uh, information as to the ends of your fingertips where they are uh, to detect that kind of information. I don't think they're going to expose that other than after it's been translated into multi-touch and cursor position outside of the uh, API. 
I can definitely confirm that because in the three sessions that I watched yesterday on the WWDC developers site, they made specific mention of the fact that all of your input through Reality One goes into the secure enclave and it has to be translated from there out. So they are not allowing people to track your eye movements and things like that for advertising purposes, strictly verboten. Next question. Paolo Sav from New York asking, while there appears to be less smoke in the air today in New York, it reminded me of the need for home air purifiers. Can you share your recommendations and considerations? Thank you. Jeffrey Powers. The best home pur uh, purifier that you actually have, you, you probably already have in your home, and that's your furnace. And if you have an AC system, then you have, uh, you have even more because it can pass cool air. The best thing to do is to get your, uh, your vents all cleaned out and, uh, and change your filters in the uh, in on the furnace, so you can pass clean air through. Uh, but I do have a couple extra air purifiers uh, in certain areas. Um, there's uh, the ones that I really like are the ones that have a really good filter to them, and they also have a charcoal filament option to them as well. So it can uh, capture a little bit more than just dust, uh, dust and dirt. Mitchell. Uh, everything Jeffrey just said, I use the Mila. It's a, a standalone device. It's an Internet of Things. Um, the only problem with it, it's a little verbose. It's constantly chatting to me over my uh, iPhone and giving me uh, updates on the uh, uh, the conditions outside right now. It's saying something to the effect, uh, batten down all the hatches, stay inside, don't go out. So if you like that kind of direction from your air purifier, that's the one, the Mila. Next question. Next one in from L. Wilson Spiro in Berlin. Excuse me. Since the Vision Pro only puts the highest resolution where you're looking, how would streaming video out from it work? Wouldn't the full feed look worse everywhere where the headset wear isn't looking? Uh, Jeff Cohen. Yeah, I, I, may, maybe I'm misunderstanding it again, or, or maybe someone knows. I don't remember hearing anything about any ability to stream anything out from the headset. Of course, you can... Uh, watch content. In other words, all the content is coming in. Uh, nothing is streaming out, uh, as far as I know. And also, I mean, interestingly, uh, you know, when they first did the demo of the lady traveling in the hotel room, she's in this awesome FaceTime call. I mean, it occurred to me right away, like, wait a minute, what are they seeing? And then, of course, later we learned the very cool thing that they talked about, which is they're not really streaming your video out if you're doing a FaceTime, they are, you know, you do this initial enrollment when you get it, where you scan your entire head and, and they are recreating a virtual you to all the folks on the other end, if you're in a FaceTime call. So again, anyone else jump in? I'm not aware of any streaming out abilities. Alex. I think eventually you'll be able to stream out, but I, I don't know if you're going to be out of the gate. And if it is, it won't be a problem to grab the two cameras that are on the two cameras that they're using for stereo capture to send that back. That's not a CPU heavy process. The heavy process is delivering it to the, delivering a high frame rate to the eyes that are there. So it's not capturing what it's sending. So even though it's got a foveated uh, renderer that's doing what it needs to do for you, its ability to grab data and send it back to you would not really be a, a heavy lift for the headset. So I don't think it's going to be, if they decide to do that, I don't know if they, I, I think that they're going to be very sensitive about that given the trouble that Google Glass had. Um, so I think that it's not going to be something that is uh, uh, done 
there's a there's a whole bunch of ways that that could be abused. <laughs> there's a bunch of there's a bunch of things about what can be abused with that headset and the ability to capture stereo footage that we won't get into in this show. But um, but live could be even worse. And so so I think that they're probably not going to do that in the first round of of data. And I think they're going to want you to interact with it and not as 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 Jeff said, not sending things live out um, to 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 that. That actual Google Glass uh, was mentioned in one of the sessions that I went yeah. into. So they are very sensitive to this. You're right. Yeah. Courtney Gooden? Yeah, I think Alex is right. The, you know, it does allow you to stereo capture. And they, one thing they didn't mention is, you know, what is the onboard memory? And they, there didn't seem to be any micro SD card slot or anything where you could store uh, that captured data, the, the stereo captured data, and output it and bring it into something else. So I'm curious how to... How are you going to take all those moments that you've captured in your uh, Vision Pro and get into your computer to edit them? Um, that'll be interesting to see. Maybe it's just a wireless connection. Well, and, uh, and we it, AirDrop. Maybe. It probably something like AirDrop, and we have to remember that Apple has they bought um, uh, Dashwood, uh, you know, and they've been doing stereo editing or making the capability of stereo editing for uh, I don't know five or six years now inside of Final Cut. So I think that the integration between editing on the on the headset and Final Cut will be very tight, you know, um, as it as it comes out. And I think I think that you'll probably find that most people think that Final Cut Pro is the primary way to edit video for the headset. Oddly enough, the, the, the company has been working on this for a very long time. And uh, and so it's going to be an uphill battle for the other uh, editing tools to keep up with it, given that there's a tight connection between the headset and the and the software. Jeff Cohen. Yeah, I don't think it's a technological problem at all to be able to do that. I think, like Alex said, it is, I think, purely a privacy thing, which, as we know, that's their big focus and their big differentiator that they really have relied on the past couple of years. Um, to Courtney's point, you know, Alec, uh, I'm sorry, Apple has taught us a long time ago with their laptops that SD card slots are ugly, so we should not want them or use them. So I, I don't think you're ever going to see a slot on there. And by the way, they want us using iCloud. So magically, you don't have to airdrop or anything. I mean, maybe you can airdrop. They, they made improvements to airdrop, but, you know, you take a photo uh, unlike Google Glass, you know, big, you know, whoosh animation to let people know you've just taken a photograph and it will just magically go to the to iCloud and, and then you'll have access to all those photos on, on all your other devices. No, Alex, do you have a final comment? All I was going to say is that I, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this capture. I, a, if we see stereo capture in the phone, all that would be required, by the way, for the stereo capture of the phone. Right now, you have, I was looking for my phone. I think I set it down somewhere. As you see a triangle right now, it would just be a square. <laughs> they just have four lenses there. That's all they got to do to go to stereo. So it, it would it would be very, and they've th that's been rumored for quite some time. But just two identical lenses right next to each other, um, maybe spread out a little bit. Uh, it's not going to be interocular distance or interaxial distance that we would expect, but it would work. Now, the, the one for Apple to take it totally over the top would we put another lens in the other corner of the iPhone? Um, that would be amazing. Like that would, I, I, you know, whatever, you know, just like, I just throw the money if they did that because we'd be Top able to camera create. camera and bottom camera. Like, you know, well, it wouldn't be, yeah, just, but, but you know, if, if you had that ability to pick up the phone and do that, um, it'd be a big deal. But I, I very much doubt that Apple's designers are willing to let them put another, you know, lens somewhere else. 
uh, I think it's more likely that we'll see them right next to each other, which is still effective um, with a little bit of post-processing, but uh, not as effective as putting them where they belong. Let's go to the next question. From David Brady in New York, New York. David asked, tasked with the Zoom Fly Kit request, haven't seen the Rode USB NT Mini Mic, but considering it for size and its executive-proof kind of setup, any thoughts from the panel on quality? Let's go to Alex Lindsay first. Uh, we've used them for exactly the reason that you laid out. They're easy to they're easy to the, to plug in and to, easy to use. They're a request by a client. Uh, like I can't think of them off the top of my head. The, the, so here's the deal. They're a little tinty. There's not a lot. Of, the base response wasn't great. They they tend to lean towards. Um, you just have to make sure that they put them to the side. Uh, they will. They are. Um, they'll pick up a lot of pops, um, you know, and so from an executive proof uh, situation, they may or may not be the best um, solution for that. I don't know if I have a lot of other $99 versions. Going up a little bit, I'd probably rather use a Yeti for 50 bucks more or, you know, and of course what we send out are MV7s, um, but but the, but the I'd rather use those probably than the Rode. It, it, again, it's a little, little, the base response wasn't great. Um, they felt a little cheap, and they uh, and they have a lot of plosives. Ronnie, yeah, exactly what uh, Alex said. We've tried them. Uh, we wanted to use them, and we fell on the same conclusion. They are not simply just not good enough, and uh, a Yeti would be better. Uh, but um, if price is not an issue, of course, it has to be as. Uh, uh, easy to, to buy as possible. But uh, Rode has also, uh, during NAB, released the PodMic USB, which is, of course, a lot more expensive, but have uh, onboard uh, processing. Uh, so that could be something that are a bit more expensive, but we're trying to use Shures. Next question. Next one in from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herbenay, Germany. What are your thoughts about the production quality of the pre-produced WWDC 23 event? Well, we got a bunch of people in on this one. Let's start with Jeffrey Powers and then go to Courtney and then Alex. Jeffrey? Uh, yeah, the, the the production was great. Uh, the, how, they, how they set it up, the story that they told, the, uh, the shots that they did so they could really show things like inclusion, things like... Uh, uh, how the company works that's that was all some great stuff i don't don't think i saw anything that was glitchy by any means uh but the only other the only the only thing that i would say is it the since the uh, event took two hours it felt there was at about the hour 15 point i was feeling a little bit drained and uh really wishing that they would talk a little bit faster speed things up so they could get to the the uh, Vision Pro, so we could actually get on with our day. So much content. If you told me a month ago that they would have only like three sentences on the new Mac Pro, I would have never believed that. Courtney, next question. No, your, your, your thoughts? Uh, I thought it looked very slick. Of course, you know, this is Apple. They have plenty of money to throw at uh, production, and they don't have to worry about getting everything to be ready exactly for a live stream. They have weeks or months to pre-produce all of this stuff and, uh, you know, render it and create 3D models and do their compositing and put their actors on green screen stages. They don't have to schedule everybody to appear at the same place at the same time. They can uh, paint microphones out of the scene so that they can get high quality audio because they can get a good Sennheiser shotgun in within a foot or so of the person in that wide shot and paint it out later. Uh, so, uh, I thought it was very slick and I thought it, they did a really good job of doing, you know, 
doing the transitions from one to the other to keep them kind of exciting. But uh, And it moved along at a good pace. I thought it was well-edited and well-paced. Alex? I think it's a great next step. So Apple Apple stepped a couple forward, and then they stepped back a little bit. It sounded like they were going to try to go back to a stage thing. And I think that they, at some point, about a, two or three shows ago, they started making it look more like a stage event again. I thought, oh, they're going to try to go back to the stage. But then they, I think they backed away from that. <laughs> so, so I think that uh, they now have, it feels like they've really embraced that format, and they're just going down it. And it's a good step forward. I think eventually we're going to get rid of the fake LED walls that they're rendering into those scenes and just go to a show. You know, like it's not, it doesn't need to have any, I think that they're they're doing this gently for us so that we can get used to the fact that a keynote is, no, is now just a TV show. Um, but we still have, you know, these big walls that have all the stuff on them. That's that's kind of a, a nod to the to the keynote, but it's kind of a it's kind of this appendix, you know, like it's, it's a vestige from the past. I don't know if it does anything. Like they could just show those graphics in other ways. And so, hopefully, you know, within another year or two, they'll just get rid of the all the vestiges of the past um, and just have it be a Nova like show as opposed to um, some kind of. Uh, thing that's supposed to look like they could have done that on a stage. So I think that I think we're we're not not far away from them getting rid of all pieces of what we had before. Mitchell, your thoughts? A- Apple has perfected the power stance. There you go. <laughs> Courtney, you had a follow up real quick. The other thing is the demo fail is dead. You're never going to see Tim or somebody say, will everybody turn off your phones, please? Because we're getting some Wi-Fi interference. That'll oh, never gosh, happen. you're right. Wonder, what if we're going to miss the charm of, oh, my gosh, how is he going to get out of this? Uh, that was used to be one of the most tense parts of live demos. Let's get to the next question. Jason Robert Shaw from Sarasota, Florida. Does the new Vision Pro allow two or more people to be in the same virtual space at the same time? Or is it a solo experience? Is there a possibility for whiteboards, but also gameplay, tennis, laser tag, etc.? Jeff Cohen, start us off. The interesting thing that they've done and, and pointed out, of course, unlike lots of other headsets that came before it, is all of the mapping of the environment is done by the sensors on the device. So unlike some of the others that required you, you know, pre-setting up your space with sensors around the room, and then that becomes a problem, everything is done on device so it doesn't matter who else is around certainly with facetime i mean every single one of the people could be in the same physical room and yet still do their own facetime thing so this will be app specific and of course they want to enable you know they talked about games they want to be able to enable all these things so i think absolutely alex it's going to be a very interactive device, uh, both with people on the with the headset and people without the headset. I think that I think a lot of folks that have been talking about being a solo device didn't felt like they didn't even watch the keynote. Um, you know, they they built it so you can interact with other folks. So um, so I think it'll uh, I think you'll see a lot of that. I see our guests have just showed up. So very quickly, I'm just going to mention our Cinegear review show is tomorrow. A look back at last weekend, our four hours of live coverage from Los Angeles, what worked, what didn't, and things like that. So you want to be around for that. And right now, because I see very familiar faces, Andy and Adam are in the grid. I'm going to pass this off to Alex. Alex, it's Zoom day. Take it away. 
All right. Uh, welcome to the second hour. And we're very excited to have uh, Andy, uh, Andy Carluccio and Adam Towell back to uh, talk about uh, the, uh, the, new, the new breakthrough <laughs> of what we're doing here. I'm so excited about this new feature. And, and it was, so I, Andy, can I tell them a little bit of it? Yeah, please. So, as you, yeah. Well, that Andy, Andy kept on saying, you know, there's going to be a really good feature, but I can't tell you anything about it. And I'm not going to tell you anything until it happens. Like, I just can't tell you anything. And I was like, come on, come on. And he's like, no. And, and, and so I found out when everybody else found out about it, the announcement goes out and, and it's just like, it's a, uh, um, and I was so excited about it. And, uh, uh, the, uh, zoom cuts is the, is of course what we're going to be talking about. Of course, if you have other questions about zoom, we have two experts here. So if you put this together, but, uh, that, that I, um, the, the, the issue is, is that I think that this is, this is a huge step forward in making Zoom OSC more available to the average person putting together an event. Uh, you know, and, and I think that that is, uh, it's, you know, a lot of the stuff we've learned how to, of course, this whole show is running on Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO and, and, and uh, Mix Effect Pro from, you know, Adam's tool. And uh, so all of, we're already using all these things, but we've got some pretty smart people that are doing some pretty hard thinking about how to make that work. The question has always been, how do you get this stuff to go back down to someone who is just putting together a vanilla show and trying to make it just a little bit better? And I think this is just a massive step forward. Andy, uh, I'll go ahead and let you describe a little bit of the path to get here. Well, no, thank you very much. And I, I think you're you're spot on in terms of what we're thinking and putting this together. So just to restate for the group exactly what happened, um, there are two pieces to this announcement. First is we have a new liminal app called Zoom Cuts. It brings App Intense, which was that uh, WWDC announcement from last year. Um, it's a new way of bringing shortcuts into the Mac OS ecosystem. So we have a new liminal app called Zoom Cuts that brings over 40 app intents into Zoom. So you can get direct access through shortcuts. And then we also have Zoom client release 514.10. And 514.10 has app intents also included on the iOS and iPadOS releases. So the core Zoom client on mobile has the app intents. And then also Zoom Cuts, a new app, has uh, those app intents plus a few more. And it's, of course, on the macOS platform. Uh, so it's more of a a target for some of our power users. It's a way for us to quickly iterate on adding new things to it. We're really, really excited about that app. Um, so why did we make Zoom Cuts a liminal app? Well, it, I think it underscores a lot of what you just said, Alex. It's it's part of that idea that we, you know, we, we've built this automation framework with Zoom OSC. We've seen the kind of powerful things that we can do with it, but we wanted to package it in a more consumer-friendly way. It goes all the way back to Liminal's uh, you know, original mission, which is to be a sort of innovation laboratory for Zoom and to take some of these ideas that we had in Zoom OSC and figure out, okay, well, what does that look like to put that in the main Zoom client, right? I don't think that Zoom OSC and having like open sound control commands directly inside of your phone's Zoom client makes as much sense, but there already is an automation framework that Apple has available. This is you know, directly in line with taking those concepts and finding the right way that they fit inside of our core products. Um, so Zoom Cuts as a liminal app, I think, continues that mission. It's going to be a great way for us to partner with the power user community of shortcut users out there and be able to get their feedback, quickly iterate, do multiple, you know, quick releases, add new things, wrap new intents, all that kind of stuff. And, and shortcuts are also just a lot of fun, to be completely frank. It's like, you know, you can build a lot of really cool automations, put them up, and it, it looks pretty neat. Um, how, so, how, how did you how did you pick the ones that you that you uh, what was the thought process behind the ones that you've released so far? 
We looked at the usage of Zoom OSC and the workflows that we have, you know, now almost uh, three years of data about, you know, what is really popular in terms of automation for Zoom. So we wrapped a lot of those popular frameworks. Um, I'll let Adam go into a little more detail here in a moment, but the big ideas are sort of that, you know, if you have common tasks that you need to just have a button press away, that's one great way to do it. Um, if you have uh, multiple apps that you want to be able to talk to each other, there's some helpful things that you can do there. If one app supports AppIntense and now Zoom Cuts supports that, you can get them to talk to each other. And then also building more ergonomic entry points into Zoom. There's so many ways you can trigger shortcuts, more than I ever realized. Um, what I'd like to do is turn it over to Adam, uh, if we can, Alex, yep. and, and dive a little bit deeper. Um, but before I do, I just want to uh, say that you know um, Adam started at Zoom uh, right around the same time that I did. And this is something that we really, really wanted to do. He brings a lot of, you know, Apple developer knowledge to Zoom and a whole bunch of different projects and products. And this is really his baby. So I want to I want to give him credit where credit's due and let him show you just how amazing Zoom cuts can be for you. Take it away, Adam. Thanks. So I think I'll start off with a demo, but uh, I can do a little prelude. So as Andy said, you know, we looked at Zoom OSE for kind of the initial feature set, but we also looked at how... Uh, shortcuts can do things that Zoom OSC could not do. So I'm going to go switch to my computer here. We actually have a another Zoom meeting that's open right here that you're seeing on my screen. And I have a list of shortcuts. So for a lot of people, they might not uh, be familiar with shortcuts. Shortcuts came out uh, on iOS several years ago, and it recently made the move to macOS uh, last two years ago. Um, it's, I'm losing track of time because we just uh, finished WWDC, or it's actually finishing up tomorrow, and now there's macOS 14. So uh, Zoom Cuts runs on macOS 13.3 Ventura, and let's uh, do something real quick. Let's take a look at a simple shortcut that we're going to create. Um, I've actually created one already. So a common thing that people might want to do during a meeting is send a heart emoji. Uh, so we have a simple shortcut here that asks if the meeting is active. And if it's true, send the heart emoji. And the reason why I'm ask, adding the is meeting active is I don't want an, a shortcut error to appear saying, you must be in a meeting in order to send this reaction. So I'm going to run this shortcut. And we can see the heart emoji just appeared on my screen right here. Okay. Now you could say, well, why is this, uh, why is this useful? I have to like go into the shortcuts ad, click this little play button. I want to do a clap emoji, and there's the clap emoji. I could just easily have gone here and click this, right? But you might be multitasking, you might be doing other things, and then you have to go send another reaction. You have to click here, click the heart emoji like that. Uh, with shortcuts, you can integrate with a whole ecosystem of products um, by Apple or by third-party products. So if you have, say, a Stream Deck, which I have uh, let's see, right here, you can see my... Right and so this really I, takes what a lot of us were building in Zoom OSC, uh, you know, where everyone was piling up all these little things they wanted to have Zoom do that was just made their their meeting, your personal meeting. I mean, it can handle other things, but your personal meeting, you wanted to be able to mute, unmute, you wanted to be able to do all these little things. And a lot of people were using Zoom OSC to do that. And now this is simply available via Zoom cuts correctly to the to something like the Stream Deck. That's right. A lot of people, they, they may be daunted by Zoom OSC and running Companion, but they may be uh, very familiar with the Stream Deck and shortcuts. So now, again, from my Stream Deck, I can push this. You see the heart emoji, I can push this. And, and how, do you, how do you connect that, that shortcut to the, to the Stream Deck? Yeah, so Elgato has a kind of like a plugin library, and someone had created a, uh, a plugin to run shortcuts. 
So all you have to do is load his free plugin and then choose the shortcut that you want to run and assign like your image uh, in the Stream Deck software to the to the button. And you push the button and the shortcut runs. Uh, but there, again, as I said before, there's other ways to run shortcuts. You could run it through the, if I go back to my Mac screen, you could run it from the dock. So if you have like a shortcut here uh, in the dock, you can add it to the dock. There's like a, a menu bar icon that you can add, run shortcuts from here. Um, if you're technically minded, you can run it from the command line. So if you're like a hardcore terminal person, you can create like cron jobs to run shortcuts on on, on, on a schedule. Um, on iOS, there are triggers. Uh, on iPadOS, there are triggers that you can run things automatically like when you open apps. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to run shortcuts. Uh, it's not just from within the you know the shortcuts app that I'm scrolling here. Um, and so. and the and the other thing is, of course, is that now you're in the shortcuts, you can have a shortcut that calls shortcuts to Zoom, but at the same time calls shortcuts to other apps. Correct. That's right. That's right. So let's take a look again. Let's go back to my computer here, and I'm going to create a shortcut that does something. Um, Pretty, pretty simple. Um, let's take a look at, uh, so we have this uh, shortcut called send in meeting chat, okay? So I'm going to say, um, let's say, do this. So I'm gonna say find participants. So find participants in the meeting and I can add filters, say whose uh, hand is raised, okay? Um, and then I'm going to, then a meeting to that person. So it looks like someone just raised their hand. Andy, thank you very much. Selected people, and then I have the participant. I'm going to say, hello, and raiser. I'm going to run this shortcut. And you see that um, in my chat, I sent a direct message to Andy, hello, hand raiser. Okay. Um, so you could do something like this now. If I have, um, let me find. We can take a look at some other actions from other apps here. Okay. So let's say I want to send him my contact information. So I say select contact and I'll select a particular contact here. Well, and, and any and, contacts in here. So let's just say hello, Handraiser. Here is my contact info. Okay. And then I can add that variable and I can say, uh, here is my contact info, my first name. Okay. So Andy's hand is still raised, as we can see here. So I'm going to run this. And I pulled in information from my contact book, my address book, my name, Adam, and I sent it to him. So you can think of an example where people raise their hands and then you send them information that's maybe in an open browser tab. Okay. Uh, like this is the information about about Zoom cuts, right? Um, You've also had examples in the past where like you take the current song you're listening to in the music app and you paste that into the chat. You've done things where you've gone to a website, got a quote of the day, passed it out to everybody in the everyone channel. You can have all these different apps talking and working with each other, but you can also go the reverse direction as well. You can take data that originated in Zoom and externalize it to email or to your notes. Maybe you want to get something like... Um, you know, some piece of information about something that's happening in the call and you want to you want to put that somewhere else in another app that's on your system, you can do it that way as well. It goes both directions. Well, and, and you could do that's something right. like uh, with, with a, a program like um, you know, QLab or something, you could theoretically have it. I think QLab, does QLab handle shortcuts? Does it, is it a I shortcut? I think it has a few, yeah. 
It can but trigger. It could, it triggers, but you could trigger it where you could say, uh, can you do like spotlight me, trigger QLab. So you push one button and it just fires off the end. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can command multiple apps from a single shortcut as well. So if you just want to come in the top direction and just say, all right, I want my lights to turn on with, you know, some HomeKit automation. I want my Zoom meeting to join a certain call. I want, you know. How does it do the, 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 the joining the calls? Like how does that, that mechanism work? Adam, do you want to show the intent for join meeting? Sure. I can do that back here. We'll create a new shortcut. And I'm going to add the, let me actually show you all the actions that we have first. So you go to uh, search for actions, tap on apps and zoom cuts. And you can see we have over 40 different actions to control uh, your meetings or webinars. So let's go to join meeting. Go. I think you have an app selected. It's searching within. Yeah. Aha. Uh oh. All right. Let me. So um, there's. Can you share your screen? Yeah, I can. Let me just get Mukana out of the way. Um, yeah. So so I think that I think that what's really interesting there is is that that this this integration between all the different apps. So it's not just that you can now do some automation inside of Zoom. It's that the, the shortcuts basically ties you to all of the other things that your computer can do, all the other apps that can handle it, even things like MixEffect Pro, where we could be, you know, asking it to do, um, you know, cut to a variety of things. And Adam, you can tell me if, if this is correct. But, you know, I think that, you know, you could get into a situation where you say, I want to, uh, I hit one button on my stream deck and it's going to spotlight me in a meeting. It's going to cut to a super source and it's going to play a video inside of that super source, you know, from either a hyperdeck or from QLab. And all of that stuff can happen in one button for someone who doesn't know anything about companion. Does that sound about right? That sounds exactly right. Yeah. And one more thing I would add is I think it's important to also talk about what the limits are and what thing, mm -hmm. where you would cross into Zoom OSC in this process. And that is right. going to be the bi-directional nature. Shortcuts is one way. Shortcuts is I'm going to tell an app to do something. And that thing can be, I want a piece of data back, but you can't have an event that originates in a third-party solution signal back to the shortcut. With Zoom OSC, you can. Zoom OSC will listen to things that happen inside of the meeting and shoot out a message back to your stream deck so you can see you know, the, um, the names of the participants automatically changing color based on video state and all of that. Uh, whereas you could have like watch loops that take place inside of a shortcut that look for status changes, but it's not like um, it's not like triggers, right? At least on right. Mac OS. So it, um, when you need to cross that barrier, right? If you need to have a mute button that shows feedback about whether you're muted or not, that's going to be more of a Zoom OSC's task than a Zoom Cuts task. That's great. And it looks like you have the the meeting set up now. Oh yeah, I've got I've got over here because it's a little easier to show on my screen. Um, I do have the join meeting available. So um, one of the things to know about the way that shortcuts are set up is that uh, they have like nested behaviors within them. So this is join meeting, but I can join meeting via parameters or via URL. So these top level 40 items, it's worth going into them and seeing what's inside. For example, like we have one that's called like set settings uh, or set meeting settings. Yeah. Set meeting setting. This is one shortcut, one of the 40, but it's got like, you know, a dozen different things in it that it can actually do. So there's 40 top level, a little more than 40 top level shortcuts, but then inside of them are all the different things that could take place within that. So it really is worth your time to sort of go through and see actions that take place. For example, breakout rooms, 
um, really robust implementation for managing breakout rooms. So if I wanted to have a shortcut, and I think I even started to create one a minute ago where I um, uh, configure production meeting. Like, let's say I just want to have one button where when I join this meeting, I'm going to set Zoom exactly the way that I want it to work for shows. So I'm going to set my audio and video devices. I'm going to mute people on entry. I'm going to open the waiting room. I'm going to send the chat so it's restricted to only host and ho-hosts. I'm going to make breakout rooms with specific names. I'm going to open them all at the end of the sequence. Like, I can have one button that just totally configures me for this meeting when I know that this is going to be a production meeting versus just a teleconferencing meeting, right? So a whole lot of things like that um, exist inside of the Shortcuts app. That's great, uh, you know, because I think that th so this means in, that you could do things like have a button on, you know, a drop down menu up there that if you're always coming into going into after hours, let's say, you can just go just join after hours. Like I don't have to figure oh, yeah. anything out, and I don't have to, and it doesn't does it it doesn't go through the web. Does it go through still the web portal to get to after hours with that URL, or does it just send a direct uh, command mm -hmm. Zoom Cuts app to join it? So, and again, what's beautiful about that is it's not that you have to like open up the shortcuts app and go find the meeting and click the little colored, you know, box to hit it. You can have that in your menu bar. In um in the in WWC keynote, they showed a widget for shortcuts that can just live on your desktop. All your common meetings right there, just one button on your desktop. Now you're in that meeting, right? Or you can do things like ask, you know, Siri to do that for you or something like that, right? You could it's it's all tied in, right? So all those different entry points are really, really helpful. Yeah, it's great. Anything else you want to show before we before we uh, start asking questions? Um, it might be worth just showing a quick look at what it looks like in the Zoom client on mobile. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. iPad OS. So if you have that handy, Adam, that might be good to look at. I do. So if we take a look, I'm on my iPad right now. And I'm going to just go ahead and join the meeting that we're just in. And I actually have a, uh, a little widget here. You can see the widget here. I can just tap this and it'll launch the Zoom client right here. And I'm logging into that meeting right now. I think it's just uh, Andy and me now in this meeting. So let's give it a second to connect. Hopefully the, the demo gods are working for us today. Uh, <laughs> I, I heard the beep and I'm going to switch to gallery view so we can see us. Andy, your hand is still up. He also, Adam and, and Jonathan is in this room as well. Um, I'm going to turn on my video by just tapping the toggle video button. And there I, there I appear, here I am. Um, I'm muted. Actually, I'm disconnected from audio. I'm not going to mute myself so I don't get any feedback. I'll do something quick like rename myself. So I have a shortcut here that's like rename myself. And I have some commonly listed names here. And <laughs> these are like dummy. This is a template. So I can tap rename. And then we see a menu up here. And uh, so the reason for this, this particular shortcut is a very simple shortcut. You may attend a lot of Zoom meetings. And some meetings you're in after hours. Some meetings you're in a work meeting. Some meetings you're meeting with friends. And you may want your name to be different across those three meetings. So I will just say, my name is uh, CEO. Yeah, the new CEO of, uh, of Zoom, right? <laughs> so, and now you can see my name has changed uh, in the meeting here. It might be very small to see, um, but I'm going to just rename myself back to something a little longer. So you can see, you can see the name down there has, has changed to a, a really long name. Um, and I can raise my hand like this, like this. And what's great about uh, the iPad is that you can run the app, both the Zoom app and the Shortcuts app in, in split view. On right. iPhone, they have the picture-in-picture -picture ability, so you can actually create, uh, run it in shortcuts, or you can actually put the home screen widgets on your home screen, and you can have like a control panel that's dedicated to what you want to do in Zoom um, at your fingertips. So you don't have to dig around in the Zoom interface to find, oh, where's the hand gesture? Okay, it's down here in the More menu, 
and have the tap raise hand. And then people are like seeing your finger like move. You can actually just tap like this to toggle your hand and then your hand goes down. So we feel like for, for iOS and iPadOS, um, adding shortcuts um, is a great way to, to automate uh, your Zoom life. Um, you Definitely. Know. There are a lot of things that you want to do all the time on your on your phone or your or and that's always like, I got to go find that menu. So now you only have to find that menu once, you know, you just, just you know, just just and get it packaged up. So you can just tap something like, okay, and I think it's important to right. know too that there are people who are going to use shortcuts. And then there's people who are going to create shortcuts, they may not be the same group, like we might have a group of shortcut power users who make shortcuts that are then used by a much, much wider circle, right? Because all they have to do is import it onto their device. They don't have to understand how it works. They don't just have to understand what it does. They just have to know that when they hit this button or when they ask Siri to do this thing or when they hit this button in the menu bar, it's going to completely take care of them and do whatever it is they need to do. Um, and shortcuts are really well optimized for that. You can have import questions where like when they import the shortcut, it asks, hey, what's your name? What's your personal meeting ID? What's this information? And it will then just save it into the shortcut and customize it on that system. Apple has done a really, really fantastic job in that whole life cycle. So now we're part of that. So now we can just directly be included in all of that workflow. So we'll have the power users making really powerful shortcuts that are really easy to access by those end users. That's another thing that was hard to do with Zoom OSC. It was hard to like have people who were really passionate about it build stuff that could then just be turnkey for the end user. Um, shortcuts is a really great solution for that. My, my mind is, is still, I mean, I, I've been had a chance to think about it for a little while, but as you talk, I start thinking about being able to just kind of walk into my office and have everything just kind of light up. It joins Zoom. It does all the things. Everything gets moved into place. It's it's uh, it's pretty slick. Let's yeah, go if you, if you have like HomeKit lights, yeah, Alex, you know, you could have a shortcut that joins a Zoom meeting and then and turns, turns on your lights exactly the way you want it to, you know, turns off iTunes if you or music app if you have that playing. Uh, turns off the coffee maker in the background, you know, so you, that doesn't distract you. Um, there's a lot of ways to to automate, and we're looking really, we're really looking forward to seeing what you guys create. Yeah, and I, and I do think that this the level of accessibility now, in addition to a couple of us that are going to be pretty geeky about this to do exactly what you're doing, like my, I'm going to try to get this all to work by the end of the weekend. Of the lights go on, the, I join the meeting, the the whole thing. I'm going to see if I can get that actually working. Um, but what I will say is that uh, for Again, I've talked about it in the past. My my wife runs uh, meetings every day uh, for a lot of people uh, in Zoom, and but but she's primarily using the the vanilla one, and she's not you know, and, and companion is probably more than she wants to do to to kind of make this work. I think she's the prime target, you know. Like I mean, oh, maybe maybe, but but she's there's a lots of these keystrokes that would make a huge difference for that, and integrating it with a couple other apps and so on and so forth to play uh, a presentation or play a movie as well as, you know, highlighting people and moving around. I think it's going to change the way people interact with Zoom completely, especially folks that are running events. So it's it's very exciting. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the first question, Jeff. Jeff? First question from, oh, oh sorry. No, first question is Jeff. Uh, we're in the panel. Jeff? Yeah, thank you. This is so exciting for me because uh, <clears throat> I've been using shortcuts uh, on iOS before Apple owned it uh, immediately as soon as it became available on uh, Mac OS. And, and one of the things I do is I, I have a whole host of things combined. Um, like I have a very simple going on the air and, and I do pass input into that shortcut depending on what I'm doing. So when it's for office hours, it does unique things. It, it sets my lighting just right. 
Um, it brings up all my software that I'm going to be using. It runs the configuration for my interface. Uh, it does everything. But up until now, I've had to resort to command line. I send keystrokes to Zoom to to join the meeting and to join it in a way where we change our names and things like that in there. So I've had to do that. So hopefully this will let me replace all of that. Um, and by the way, in the example you mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, you can get the participant's name with Zoom Cuts. So you can, in shortcuts, if I'm right, you can replace that with a variable. So instead of saying, hi, chat person, it'll say, you know, um, hi, Andy, and and respond in kind. The other thing I want to point out is that you absolutely can um, other apps and other shortcuts can call shortcuts, including sending data into them that the shortcut will dynamically use. So whatever data you send, mm -hmm. and there's a couple different ways with a URL and even a, a terminal command line, I'll put it in the chat, and, and you can run a shortcut. So for example, uh, my DAW being Reaper, mm -hmm. plug it again, uh, I have actions in Reaper that in turn runs command line things, including shortcuts. So uh, there's a lot you can do with this. I'm excited. And go, Jeffrey. Yeah, I got to play with it last night and I did something. I just basically did the heart uh, type thing, but I haven't really gotten in depth with it. I was uh, more curious about uh, the permissions that were needed to run the app uh, within a meeting, within, uh, uh, on your own and, and as well, because I'm assuming that a lot of this stuff we don't want to have in like this show, for example, because we don't use reactions or, or anything like that. But there are some things that could be very useful to be in this type of situation. I can speak a little bit to provisioning the app. Um, so when you, it's, it's, a, it's an app, a Zoom App Marketplace app. We built it with our meeting SDK platform, just like Zoom OSC and Zoom ISO. So it's available on the Zoom App Marketplace, which means that you can add it to your account. Admins can provision it for an organization or block it. Um, and then once you are in a session, there are certain uh, requirements for the different actions, which which map one-to-one -one with how permissions are set up in Zoom. So like, you're not gonna be able to like manage breakout rooms if you're not a host or a co-host, right? So those actions, and it'll tell you that when you try to run that action that that's not available. If, if a certain feature of the meeting is not available and you try to run shortcuts to do it, it's not gonna bypass that. It's gonna respect the meeting settings overall. So um, there are certain checks in place, certain uh, conditions in place before these shortcuts can actually operate, but it's not all or nothing either. It's not like you have to have a, a certain, uh, set of requirements there in order for it to operate. It just will look at what it's got and it'll do those actions that it can uh, and it'll warn you about ones it can't. Um, so that that and, will apply. And that means really for some people, it's just it's just managing their own Zoom experience. You know, just, just being able to have shortcuts there to just um, log into things, you know, pop into things, pin something to somewhere else, that type of thing. Whereas for other people, they if they have host or co-host or whatever, they're now ex executing things against that meeting that other people can see. But it's still all in this in the normal normal uh, set of uh, allowances. Hey, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, if I could add to that, so the Zoom Cuts is designed for you know Mac power users, and what we have on iOS and iPadOS um, has a very uh, similar feature set, but it's also a little bit more limited. So the um, the way the actions work on iPad I, iOS is that a lot of the controls are actually host and co-host only. So you can't do things like um, get the meeting participant list if you're just a normal attendee. So for a normal attendee or, or participant, you can do things like toggle your video, mute, um, raise and lower your hands, 
Um, but you won't be able to kind of like go through the participants list. Uh, there's no send in meeting chat. Uh, we have those in Zoom cuts, uh, again, because they're targeted for more power users and it's uh, a technical preview where we're constantly adding new, new features. Um, as we kind of test these things out, these features will probably make it into the other clients that we support in the future. Let's go to the first question. First question in from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, asking, do Zoom cuts work with all Zoom users or just those on other Luminal products? Go ahead, Adam. So yeah, it works for all Zoom users. So you can just, you can sign in uh, with your Zoom account uh, or you could just join a meeting not uh, not being logged in. Andy, do you have anything else to add there? Just that it's free. Yeah, it's a free app you can download. There's no requirement on any other product that we sell. Um, so it's free, free for anyone to just go download it from the site. Amazing. Uh, next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Alexander asked, I noticed Zoom Cuts is only compatible with Mac OS Ventura. Are there specific APIs that are only available there, or were there other reasons why Monterey could not be supported? Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, so Shortcuts has been around for quite some time, and in Ventura, they changed the way uh, they changed the way uh, Shortcuts are implemented. So they introduced a feature called App Intents, and before they were called Siri Kit Intents. So we made the decision to support App Intents only, uh, which made the system requirements to Ventura. It's 13.3 and, and higher. And what I drove that, that decision? That was a, a good decision because at WWDC, there's a heavy focus on App Intents. So they've extended App Intents extensively. Uh, and that's the that's, that was a good decision for us not to be backward compatible with the older system. So sorry if you're on can, Monterey, but uh, time to upgrade to Ventura. Can you def talk a little bit about what that app intents, what, what makes them special or what makes them different than the past? Yeah, so from a developer's perspective, the, the old way you had this custom interface within Xcode. Xcode is Apple's development environment uh, where you, you had a kind of a visual GUI where you could kind of like create your intents. And while that was good from um, kind of like a usability perspective, from a person creating intents, it was actually kind of difficult for developers. So now with app intents, everything is in code. So it works really well with uh, source code control because now multiple people can work on different intents at the same time. And then when trying to merge their changes, they're just merging a single file, which represents a single intent. The old way, everything, all the intents were in one big intent definition file. So if someone made just one little change, a text change, that would require everyone to kind of like pull the new intents definition file and possibly do some merge conflict stuff. Uh, and it was very, very complicated. So what we've been seeing with Apple uh, and all their new stuff this year is that they're moving everything to be just code. Uh, so it makes it easier for the developer, for maintaining it from a source code control perspective and also localization. Yeah, go ahead, Ronnie. Um, you said that it's for Ventura. Uh, did you say the the? So I have two questions. Uh, the one is uh, about the Ventura version. Um, uh, the other thing is that you actually destroyed my uh, my whole uh, plans we had we had for the weekend. You, you actually made me do a lot of other stuff. <laughs> there's going to be some of us hanging out in after hours doing uh, playing with this. I think so. I think that's what what's going to happen over this weekend. But you yeah, so the, the minimum Ventura yeah. version is thirteen point three. And you have, did you have another question running? No, that, that was it. That was it yeah. too. Yeah. All right, next question. David Brady from New York, New York asking, as an enterprise customer, we're still battling adoption issues. When will the Luminal products be rolled into a Zoom SKU? This is our biggest challenge in getting things single sign-on enabled. Go ahead, Andy. 
So the good news is that for our free apps, which include Zoom OSC Essentials as well as Zoom Cuts, there's no need for a SKU uh, because there's no concept of purchasing or provisioning. It's just a free download app. So uh, you'll be good on this one. Don't have anything to worry about here. Um, when it comes to the other liminal apps, I don't have any other information to share at this time on enterprise type provisioning, but just to continue to work with your account representatives in Zoom and uh, and um, you know look forward to more information in the future. Next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada asking, what is your favorite shortcut to demonstrate both the ease of use and effectiveness of Zoom cuts to potential users? Go ahead, Adam. So I'll give two examples. Uh, one of them is one I showed before, it's just the reaction. So I'm in meetings a lot uh, or in webinars, and I just want to be able to give a reaction. And again, dragging my mouse from wherever it is to that little button. Uh, and maybe sometimes if my Zoom window is like too small, I can't see the button. I have to click the more button and then click reactions and then choose the reaction. Now I can just on my stream deck, just push heart, thumb, clap, or whatever. Uh, it instantly appears. For a host of a meeting, uh, the funnest and most kind of useful shortcut that I made is the introduction shortcut. And so what that does is just say you're in a kickoff meeting for the first time with 10 other people. And usually at a kickoff meeting, they spend like five minutes introducing each other to everyone on, on the, uh, on the, in the meeting. So what this shortcut does is it iterates through all the people who have their video enabled and it spotlights them in a random order, one at a time. And uh, while it's doing the introductions, it queues up the next person by sending them an in-meeting chat and saying, hey, you're up next. And as the, the runner of the shortcut, as the host, I can choose how long each person has to introduce themselves. So I can say, okay, everyone, you're going to introduce themselves over 15 seconds. And then I run the shortcut, gets the first person, spotlights them, gives them 15, minute, 15 seconds to talk, and then sends a message just a few seconds before going over to the next person saying, you're up next. It brings them up and then removes the spotlight from the previous person. And it does that all until the, the very end. And then it brings everyone, removes all the spotlights. So everyone sees them, everyone else in the meeting. One so button. Andy, you have a, a one, one that you found is pretty good. <laughs> I think that's, that, that's one of my favorites. Uh, awesome. Sure. Yeah. I, I also really like the, um, I was showing a little bit of it, but the idea that I can hit a button to configure a meeting for a different purpose, because we use Zoom for all sorts of different purposes, right? Sometimes we're having meetings, but sometimes we're doing events. Sometimes we're doing watch parties and, and there's a bunch of different buttons. You're going to go to the security shield. You're going to go to the three dots menu. You're going to go, you know, uh, set up your audio and video devices differently, potentially depending on what type of show this is. So uh, having a shortcut that just like, hey, what what kind of thing is this? And then you say, oh, this is my production meeting. And it boom, sets up all the breakout rooms and names them and sets the waiting room up and sends the chat messages and does all that stuff with one button press. I'm really excited about that. Go ahead, Adam. You have another one, which is uh, I have multiple cameras and microphones, as you can probably tell. So there's a shortcut that we have in Zoom Cuts called Configure Audio Video Devices. And you can set the camera, you can set the mic, and you can set the speaker uh, all at once. So if I have a, a shortcut that's like switch to my, you know, the webcam that's built in my laptop, I can do that. I have another button that's switched to my kind of my Canon DSLR. That I'm using right now, I can do that very easily. So with one button press. Go ahead, Chris. You know, uh, Andy, you know me, I'm a total Luddite when it comes to most of this stuff. And I realize there's probably a way to do this now, but could shortcuts be used to um, build a breakout room infrastructure when I launch a meeting? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Uh I'm totally interested in downloading now. Gotta go. Bye. <laughs> well, and, and you could also not only do it when you build, right? You could do it, you could hit a button, a shortcut, and it would create all the breakouts 
when you wanted to create them, correct? Yeah, you can create up to 50 at a time in a single batch. You can configure their settings and properties. Do you want to auto move people? What's the timer on the countdown? All that stuff. Oh, that might be a really good tutorial to build and post on the website. Thank you. And, and yeah. speaking of the website, we have example shortcuts available for download um, where you can grab different types of presets. And we plan to continue to add on that. And uh, you just get it directly from iCloud onto your device and import it directly. So uh, as we continue to build out the shortcuts, we're going to be putting a bunch of things like that up on the site. Next question. From Samuel Nordvik in Norway. Andy, as someone who has been very instrumental in developing Zoom as a production tool, what would you recommend for aspiring programmers to focus on if they want to develop on Zoom's platform or develop AV apps in general? Go ahead, Andy. Well, the good news is we, on our developer platform, support a wide variety of uh, languages and types of APIs and interfaces. Um, you know, on, on uh, Windows, we've got our C++ plus our C-sharp wrapper. We've got on Mac OS, uh, Objective-C, and there's some things on the Swift side as well that we're looking into. Our APIs are available, through, you know, and, and there's JavaScript SDKs, the apps SDK. There's all sorts of different entry points. So I would say rather than thinking about, hey, what programming language do I need to use? I'd rather think about what do I need to create? And I think this is, this is you know, you shouldn't let... Um, a perceived lack of knowledge about what you need to do encumber your ability to start a project. So think about what you want to do. And this is this is more true than ever now with the tools that are available. Think about some project, some problem that you want to solve and just start trying to solve it. Go to the Zoom uh, developer website. Uh, I think it's developers.zoom.us. Um, and take a look at the documentation, look at the different things that are available to you and see, okay, maybe it's a, I want to call an API here to do something on a scheduled task. Maybe I want to build a meeting client that just works a little bit differently. Oh, I know C++. Great. I'll download the, the Windows SDK and get started. I started with just C++. Um, now our liminal apps use, like I said, uh, we have C Sharp in them. Uh, we have C++, of course, still Objective-C and Swift. Uh, we have some JavaScript going on. There's a whole bunch of different things that we use, but it's one developer platform. That's what I like so much about it. Based on where you enter, you're not locked in. You can go horizontally to any other part of the developer platform once you're inside. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fairly accessible. I think the documentation has gotten a lot better. I think there's a lot more sample projects. And again, all the liminal apps are built on top of our own SDKs. This is you know part of why I think they're so powerful is that we're building real apps that solve real problems using our third-party developer infrastructure. So uh, anything that you see Zoom Cuts doing or anything that you see Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC doing, you could do those things in your apps as well. And if you think back to NAB, we announced seven different companies who are doing that in all different parts of our developer ecosystem. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, can you trigger shortcuts via OSC or other external interface? Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so QLab has the ability to trigger shortcuts, uh, and then QLab could be triggered by OSC as well. I'm sure there's other ways to do it. Um, there's a million entry points to shortcuts. That it's, and this is one of the beautiful things about it being part of the operating system is that you know all these different things. You know, you can assume first of all that anybody who has Ventura has all the backend infrastructure already on their computer that they need to do this stuff. And uh, number two, developers are writing in their apps the ability to expose functionality to the OS. There's a lot of automation frameworks out there. I'm personally a big fan of things like AutoHotKey, but what AutoHotKey can't do is I, as a developer, can't write in my app, expose these things to AHK to be able to talk to it programmatically. AHK is just going to take control of my mouse and keyboard and click on different spaces, and I can be clever about you know how I design my windows and stuff like that. But it's just not the same experience. So there's a lot of really cool entry points. Uh, Adam showed the Stream Deck integration. There's the menu bar. There's all sorts of stuff. And then there's all all these other apps whose purpose is just to like be even more entry points to shortcuts. So the, uh, there's a lot of different ways to build it into the workflow. Absolutely. Next question. 
Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida has a question. Will this be integrated into the main Mac OS Zoom client? Bonus for any ETA if it will. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so right now we're starting with um, our meeting SDK on Mac OS, which is uh, the same user interface for Zoom. It's actually built off of the same code base as our client. That was one of the big announcements that we had last year is sort of the consolidation of the developer platform, uh, which allows us to quickly iterate on things. Um, I think that uh, we... We want to use the developer platform as a way of getting information from the power users about exactly what is the priority in the way that we expand this across the product wheel. So we felt confident in our approach for iOS and macOS. I think we have some good ideas for how to do this on macOS as well. We wanted to give people an early look. So I would think about the Zoom Cuts thing as a technical preview of things to come and an olive branch to the power users saying, hey, we know that macOS has a different set of functionality and a different set of requirements than we have on mobile. What kind of shortcuts do you guys want to create? What's really important to you? We're going to look at that and use that information to help us understand how to continue to expand the integration. Go ahead, Jeff. And and I think that, of course, makes sense. And, and again, it's awesome to be able to get our hands on it. And then as you iterate with this, we don't have to wait for the client. So 100% on board, big picture, and, and even potentially a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing. Uh, as someone mentioned, uh, it's nice to be able to create shortcuts for ourselves, but also very powerful to create shortcuts for our users, our clients. And this is one more stumbling block, of course, that we have to worry about. Do they have it installed? Do they have the right version? So big picture, as many of those um, friction points we can remove for and, other users, the better. And we can, if you control both sides. So if I sent someone a Mac Mini, you know, I can set up a listener, I mean, inside of the shortcuts infrastructure, not necessarily the Zoom cuts infrastructure, I could be listening for commands online to then do things to the local computer. I mean, that, I mean, I think that, that you know, that, like anything else. So, so then we could really have, you know, a, a central control that sends out to all the computers to do this, to do this. Like I could hit a button and say, have everybody go to original audio, have everybody do this, turn all these lights on, turn all the things on. It's not Zoom Cuts doing that necessarily, you know, between the two computers, but it could be an, another handler that's grabbing that information and then delivering it back to Zoom as a Zoom as a Zoom Cuts. If you and again, you know, that could be sending the Mac Mini or it could be sending them an iPhone or an iPad, you know, because it's on, it's on there as well. So, you know, you don't right. necessarily have to go all that way. There are things that right. are in that native Zoom client in 5.14.10 that you could use today. Yeah, absolutely. Adam? Yeah, one thing I want to clarify also is that the shortcuts that you make on iOS and iPadOS and the ones you make on Zoom Cuts aren't right now cross-platform compatible. Uh, and that's because they're separate applications. Um, so, you, and, and they also have different kind of functionality, some of the actions. So if you make a shortcut that's on iOS uh, and it works fine on that, you may need to recreate it right now for, for Zoom Cuts. But hopefully we can... Okay. We can Resolve that in the future. Next question. L. Wilson Spiro from Berlin asking, can Zoom Cuts, for example, monitor the meeting for participants that meet a criteria and then perform a specific action or can it only run shortcuts manually? Go ahead, Adam. So right now it can only run shortcuts manually. You could have some type of like a cron job that's running that's uh, checking every like few seconds um, or information that's in the meeting. But uh, we don't have any way to trigger a shortcut automatically from within Zoom cuts. Next question. Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. Is there any possibility that Zoom cuts could be migrated to the Zoom Rooms platform? 
Yeah, go ahead, so I, I think that it's uh, certainly a very interesting idea. What we want to do is we want to see how people use shortcuts in the platforms that we have them available. And we want to see that featured demand um, for different parts of the product wheel. Again, the way that we build things, you know, um, we are trying to do it in a way that is as open as possible um, and that doesn't restrict us. So we have a lot of horizontal room to do different things. And we want the users to sort of guide what they need based on the type of shortcuts that they're creating. So, um, you know, again, Zoom Rooms has sort of a different form factor, right? There's the Zoom Room app itself, but then there's the ZRC. Is it that you want shortcuts in the Zoom Room or do you really want the shortcuts in the ZRC? That, you know, there's different things about that that could be interesting to think about. Um, so again, I would say use the use the shortcuts that we give today uh, to prove value, to prove workflows, and then let Zoom know that feedback, you know, open the tickets, talk to your account reps, uh, let people know that you want to see it in a certain way, shape, or form. But I think the best way to start is to actually use what we give today to demonstrate a workflow and then talk about how, you know, uh, Zoom rooms or other parts of the product wheel, team chat, whiteboard, all that stuff, you know, could be, could benefit from uh, further adoption. Next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida, asking, will we be able to automate toggling original sound on or off when joining a meeting? Go ahead, Adam. Yes. There's an action for that. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so so that, that'll be useful for a lot of us. Uh, go ahead, Andy. I was just going to say as well that um, uh, the, um, yes, the shortcut's in there. Uh, also, in 5.14.10, the audio channel configuration option will persist as you move into breakout rooms as well. So now you don't have to worry about going back and setting that up. That's that's resolved in 5.14.10. That's great. On iOS, the set original sound it actually is not there, but uh, it is on the Zoom Cuts app um, or macOS. Next question. Next one from Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. How shareable would it be if I build custom shortcuts? I'm wondering about the metadata configuration where specifics might be different on different systems. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, so shortcuts are very, very shareable. Um, if you just go to the uh, the action or the share menu, you can say copy iCloud link. That uh, uploads your shortcut to Apple, um, and you can then send that link to someone else. They click on it, and then they say there's like a little import dialog, and you the person accepts it, and then that it's added to their shortcut library. Um, a lot of, since Zoom cuts, if you're talking about Zoom cuts um, and not kind of the cross-platform story, uh, it should just work if it's running on, you know, Ventura or and, and higher. I mean, you may have a shortcut that says, configure it to this particular camera. And if they don't have that camera, the Zoom cuts is going to give you an error saying like, uh, can't, you know, I don't have this camera. Um, but if you're just doing things like, getting a list of participants, iterating over them and like spotlighting them or lowering hands, it should just work. Code Andy. And this is also, I think, um, part of why import questions are so cool. Um, I was talking to Jonathan about this the other day, you know, for our own internal services org, um, Jonathan could create a shortcut that like sets up, you know, join, join my meeting, set specific devices, and here's the list of names that I want to be prompted, which one I want to use when I'm on this call. But we don't necessarily want to build that shortcut you know, a hundred times for all the different people in the organization, we can write import questions so that when the shortcuts being imported onto the user's computer, it prompts them and says, what is your name? What is your PMI? What devices, you know, and it asks those questions and burns them into the shortcut when it's imported onto their system. They're not prompted every time, but they're prompted at that import time. So now that shortcut is customized to them when it was brought in. So Apple's really done a nice job of thinking about that whole sharing importing workflow. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael asks, can Zoom cuts be used to integrate Zoom with automation tools like Better Touch Tool and Keyboard Maestro? Go ahead, Adam. Definitely. Those two tools have the ability to run shortcuts and Zoom cuts is a exposes shortcuts. So yes, the answer is yes. Go ahead, Andy. So yes, but should it is the other question. And I think that this is going to be an important question for users to decide where shortcuts leave off and where you know more advanced automation frameworks uh, begin. Again, Zoom OSC is more of an API form factor thing. So depending on how complex of an interaction it is you're looking to build and, and what third-party frameworks you're trying to build into, shortcuts, you might have to go through a couple of hops or a couple maybe an intermediate scripting language or things like that in order to be able to get where you want to go. But I think it's important always to go back and say, wait a minute, am, am I solving the problem or am I stringing together a bunch of tools to make a solution? Like, So think about the problem first and then look at the liminal apps and the APIs and SDKs and all that stuff and figure out what the most effective way is to solve the problem. Um, but of course, a million entry points to shortcuts, a lot of great things you could do, keyboard maestro being a particularly interesting one. So yeah, you can do it. Just make sure to think about should you do it. Yeah, I think that I can see how someone's going to grab onto shortcuts and start automating things, get used to that automation, start building really complex shortcuts, and then realize that that Zoom OSC is probably what they need. <laughs> you know, like, it's almost like we thought of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so smart. All right, all right. Next question. Bill Davis in from San Diego asking, can you send someone a pre-built Zoom cut for something like launching a specific meeting? Or do Zoom cuts need to originate on your local system? Basically, is a Zoom cut exportable and transferable? I Go think ahead, that was just covered on Craig's, wasn't it? Craig's answer? Yeah, it sounds like yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you I think you just covered it. very easily with other people. Yeah. Is it, I guess, but specifically with the login to a, to a meeting, it, it, I guess if it has the password all built in and it doesn't require a, a, a login to the client, then you could send it to them. But obviously if there's a login that you would, is there a way for it to grab that from them once and then keep it? Or is it, is it something that they would need to, the, the, the challenge is always being signed in, you know, for into Zoom to, oh. to get in. Yeah, well, we use OAuth. So it's all based on your browser. So whatever you're signing in with the browser, you know, that's what right. Zoom cuts will be signed in with. So there's a button when you download the app, it says, do you want to sign in? If it does, it pumps you out to your default browser. You sign in with Zoom and then it pumps back in to the app. And then I think you might have to do it like once a day. You might have to check back in with the browser, make sure you're logged in. Um, but uh, I, I think that... Um, now that the browser handles the login, things are a lot easier than it used to be. Next question. Don Snyder has a comment. Can Zoom cuts be used to create an effective mute switch that, oh, oh quick, let me jump on in here again. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada asks, can Zoom cuts be used to create an effective mute switch that overcomes the issues with other software-based solutions? Go ahead, Andy. I would caution this one. I think you know, we do have a mute action. So like at, at a very uh, functional level, yes, you could trigger mute and unmute from within shortcuts. But again, um, it's not proactively notifying you when that changes inside of Zoom. So I, I don't think that that's the right choice. I would look at this as more of a Zoom OSC style task where you have companion and you have this bi-directional communication stream going out to Zoom. If something changes in Zoom, it changes on the stream deck. If it changes on the stream deck, it changes in Zoom. Or look at a hardware mute upstream. Uh, I, I don't think that shortcuts is the right form factor for that sort of thing. Because again, the icons are not gonna necessarily update based on what's happening in Zoom. You won't look at that button and easily know whether or not you're muted or unmuted. So that is one of the requirements, I think, for having a 
robust mute on mute workflow. Uh, well, you'll hit the button and it will work in Zoom, but you need to have a little bit more than that, I think, to have an effective mute on mute workflow. Next question. Al Wilson Spiro from Berlin asking, are you all concerned about people distributing malicious shortcuts like one that sends a heart emoji then tells Terminal to run a nasty thing? Go ahead and Adam. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that Apple does to mitigate this. So the first is, and I mentioned this before, when you receive a shortcut link and you click on it, Apple will show you a preview of the shortcut with a list of all the actions. So you can review what's happening. Now, an unsophisticated user might just scroll to the bottom of the list and just click import. At that point, if they would run the shortcut, and since they hadn't run it before, it will ask a few things. So it's going to run the Zoom Cuts action. Shortcuts app will ask the user, do you want to allow this shortcut to uh, control Zoom Cuts? And they'll click yes. Then the next thing would be the, ter the bad terminal command, rmf-rf. Then it'll say, do you want to allow the shortcut to uh, run the terminal? And actually, there's another advanced setting that uh, you can toggle to allow shortcuts to actually even run scripts from the terminal. It's off by so default. There's a couple of things that you can do to um, that, that Apple does to kind of prevent this. But again, it, the, the onus does come onto the user to make sure that they are using shortcuts that are uh, safe and they have to do, take, take some responsibility in that by inspecting the shortcut actions. Yeah, go ahead, Andy. And I just wanted to add that I think that, you know, obviously Apple's been super aware of this. This is going to be true for any shortcut versus just, you know, the, the Zoom-based shortcuts. Um, and like Adam said, at every step in the process, you're seeing exactly what the shortcut is doing. You're giving explicit permission every time. It's really, in my mind, no more dangerous than like somebody writing an article on the internet that says like, type this into this thing and do this. And, you know, somebody just blindly following that, right? Like it's, um, Apple has, as gives you a lot of pop-ups and notices the first time you're running something. And again, by default, this shortcut would not run because the user will not have that setting for running shell scripts enabled in their shortcuts app by default. Next question. Talalek Lopez Waterman traveling in Brevard, North Carolina. How do you add Zoom cuts to your account? Go ahead, Andy. So the first time you try to sign in, it's going to take you over to the marketplace and say, hey, do you want to add this to your account? And it's going to show you the different permissions that Zoom Cuts needs in order to be able to operate. One thing we haven't talked about is that it has the new join flow that we added to Zoom ISO 2.1 beta. So it can join Zoom events. It can discover them. It can do things with the PMI. It can do things uh, with your display name and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's actually able to get into a whole lot of really cool things. Um, and so it shows you all those permissions that you need. Then you can hit allow it and, um, or you can request for it to be added to your account. If you're not the admin of your account, uh, for example, if you're in some sort of enterprise situation, it'll send it a note saying, Hey, this user would like to add zoom cuts. What do you think? Here's what it does. Um, and then your it team can provision it for you. Go ahead, Adam. And for iOS and iPad OS, the, the latest client 514.10, we're enabling, uh, the ability to run shortcuts across the, the zoom kind of community. So you may try to run a shortcut right now and might say that the feature is not available, but uh, we're slowly rolling it out. So soon. Next question. James Fosley from Minneapolis, Minnesota has a question. It looks like you're updating Zoom cuts daily, or are you just being really active to begin with? Go ahead, Andy. Definitely being active here in the in the opening volley as we're getting direct feedback from folks about, hey, this would really help, you know, ergonomically for me to do this, that or the other thing. One of the big differences for, as a project that Zoom cuts is compared to Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC is that with Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC, I kind of assume that you're going to be running Zoom as well as like your your contribution client. And then these are your production tools that are off on the side that you're occasionally interacting with. Um, with Zoom cuts, it's really designed to be that primary client for you to join. Um, and so there's a couple of just different things about the workflow and the packaging 
um, that we're getting feedback rapidly. We really appreciate it. So we encourage you to do that as well. Um, but as we're discovering things and as we want to, again, clean and refine, we knew we were going to be on this morning. We wanted to make things as strong as possible in that initial release. I would not expect us to continue to release daily uh, moving forward. Um, and I think things will sort of relax into more of a maintenance mode. Uh, but, we, uh, you know, again, we also are welcoming feedback on other interfaces that you'd like us to include. Uh, if there's a certain part of Zoom that, you know, that you are dealing with menus and drop downs all the time and you don't see it as a shortcut, uh, send us a note. And uh, we'll happily look at, you know, rolling that into the roadmap for a future update. Um, so, yeah, a lot of activity right now. Longer term, it'll calm down a little bit. We're just trying to primarily deal with those things that are everything that is not the shortcuts, right? Everything that has to package around it to make this an attractive client to use for your meetings day to day. Next question. Bill Davis from San Diego, California is here. When is the office hour, second hour coming for developing and benefiting from Zoom cuts? And I wrote second hour, I meant after hours. When is the after hours session that we can go in and work on these? We'll have to set some up. No, yeah, so yeah, so go ahead, Andy. Happy to talk more about that. Also, I think it would be great to um as a as an office hours viewer to have the chance to do a second hour on shortcuts in general. I think there's so much stuff that we couldn't cover yeah. today about just how shortcuts work on the Mac. And it's a really powerful tool, not just for our app, but for all sorts of different purposes. So uh, it's also very lab friendly as well, as you, as, as Bill sort of alluded, um, because at the end of it, you have a shortcut that you can actually use to do something or you can share it with other people in the community. I'd love to, if it's cool with you, Alex, I'd love to set up a Discord channel at some point where we could just start sharing our, our shortcuts that we've made that we think are cool uh, or talk about it with the community. Um, I think that'd be a lot of fun. I think that's a great idea, Chad. That would be a great idea to have, Chad, uh, to have this created. In fact, it would be amazing, Chad, if it was done in the next five minutes. <laughs> anyway. So anyway, not saying it's not reactive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, next question. Next one in from Dan Huber in Erie, Pennsylvania. If our Zoom account uses single sign-on, are there limitations on Zoom cuts? Go ahead, Andy. So uh, as part of our OAuth flow, when you get pumped out to the browser, one of your login options is SSO. So for example, uh, we have an SSO account that's kind of our corporate tenant at Zoom. So I just go into my uh, tenant there and I type in you know, the URL for that, and then I'm logged in through single sign-on. So um, that you know, that's all. Now that that's all web-based and through your browser, again, super super easy. The app doesn't have to do anything to support SSO login because it's all managed the browser. Next question from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Any interest in hearing how to write shortcuts that can handle the Mac OS iOS cross-platform concerns? Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, so we know what the problem is. It's just a matter of uh, resolving it. So if you want to get technical about it, it's just. Um, the iOS app and the iPadOS app are are different apps under a different account uh, within Apple's system. So they, they're just seen as two different things, even though the app intents are named identically. We signed the Liminal apps with Liminal certificates and the Zoom client, obviously, with Zoom certificates. And if you have a different yeah. identifier, uh, it shows up as a different app. Yeah. So if, if, if we were to add shortcuts to the native uh, Zoom client, it would be signed presumably by the same team identifier as the iOS and iPadOS, so that those shortcuts will be cross-platform compatible. Adam and Andy, thank you so much for your time. 
It's so amazing to have you here, especially right when it comes out. Uh, we love having uh, you guys come on and talk, talk talk to us about whatever when there's something new to talk about. Um, I think that we might try to get you on more regularly as as a lot of us start to ramp up on these things and other things and just just for some general Q and A and definitely in after hours we'll try to we'll try to set up some sessions where we can um, be kind of relaxed and play with things and talk about those things. So I definitely expect that. Uh, I I don't know exactly when I'm going to do it, but I'll be de- jumping into after hours. Um, uh, sometime over the weekend to play with, I'll, I'll ping, I'll try to coordinate it with, uh, uh, you know, with Chris and other people, but, but we'll, I'll know in a little bit, but we're going to jump in. We'll have a couple of us just hanging out, playing around with shortcuts, um, probably on Saturday and, uh, Saturday or Sunday and, and just kind of seeing what we get out of it. But I think you, you should expect to see both some informal and then some more formal labs on shortcuts and, and zoom cuts specifically, uh, inside of it as we we want to get everybody up to speed as fast as possible. So so we're going to be working on that. So thank you so much for getting us started. Well, thanks so much for Welcome. having us. We appreciate it. And again, hats off to Adam. This is his baby, his vision. You know, he, as a Shortcuts Power user, he advocated for that inside of Zoom and now it's in our clients. So uh, it's really great to have Adam here. Yeah. By the way, Zoom cuts us now in the Discord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we act quickly. Seeking shall find. So, so thanks. Yeah, great work, Adam. Yeah, really, Under really video fantastic. conferencing. Thank you. Um, and thanks to our producers for all the great questions. We had a lot of great questions today. Of course, every day you know, we can't get these this show done without you. Uh, we get in, we have no idea what we're going to talk about when we show up. Uh, about five thirty, I look at it and I go, "Okay, what are we talking about?" And so your questions, especially your early questions are critical. Remember that uh, also if we're sending it, if we send questions back to you at the end of the hour, you can always put them in the next next day. Um, and so uh, so definitely just they're being sent to your notes if you don't know that. Uh, they're not just being thrown away. They're sent back to you so that you can resubmit them uh, for that. So definitely ask those questions. Ask early, ask often. Uh, so it's really, really uh, great to have uh, a big stack of questions at the top of the hour. It makes a huge difference for us. And thanks to the panelists. Uh, we can't do this without you either <laughs> because we this is, the, this is the show that we all do it together. Uh, we really appreciate all the panelists that are coming. If you're interested in being a panelist, uh, there is a, um, a panelist link that you can see uh, in, um, in the emails that go out every morning. And we'd love to have you on the panel with us. And finally, thanks to the incredible team that gets this all done every single day. Uh, the team that's managing, like figuring out what we're actually going to talk about. This doesn't happen. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> like I, I, I talk to them. I, I, you know, it's, it's a conversation, but there's really an incredible team figuring out what we're talking about every day, figuring out, you know, um, planning these sessions, planning all the things that have to happen, as well as an incredible team developing all this software uh, that we make work every single day to, to, to get this off the ground. And then an incredible team that is actually executing this event. Um, and again, if you're if you're interested in finding out more about those teams, uh, we're going to have a volunteer meeting uh, on Saturday, uh, this this Saturday, and you can find out more about that in the email that goes out as well. We'd love to have you. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Tomorrow we're going to be uh, doing the WWC wrap up. WWC, all the things that we saw, all the things that we wanted to see, all the things we didn't see. Now we traveled 97,000 miles, 157,000 kilometers. And that's more than 774 million, million, not just, not 70, 174 bananas. That would be really big bananas. But 70, 774 million bananas for scale. Oh,
for all those bananas I bought at NAB, I didn't end up with one. Headset. I got a bunch of them that you sent to me. I'll send you one. So there you go. Don't. <laughs> <It's not worth laughs> I'm going to send you a real banana. It'll, I'm sure it'll be nice and brown by the time. Andy and Adam, thank you so much. That's we great. really appreciate how hard you great work. Great to so see good. you.